Tropical birds scattered as Drake veered the jeep onto an old rutted track, snapping branches and tearing away vines. Plowing through the rainforest with colours in pursuit, bullets flying, a gorgeous but pouty girl in the passenger seat and a bitch of a headache. With one of his arms on the wheel, the jeep slewed to the left and a pouty girl screamed as he forced the vehicle back onto the trail just before they would have crashed into a felled tree. Nathan Drake was beginning to hate the jungle. Those were the first paragraphs of Uncharted The Fourth Labyrinth. And welcome to the first episode of Laps Gamer Radio, Ballyhoo. Pretty spiffing, I'd say. Um, I'm Andy, uh, the host of the first episode of Ballyhoo. And joining me today are Lee. Hello, everyone. And Mark. Hello. The word Ballyhoo means a clamorous and vigorous attempt to win customers or advance any cause. Blatant advertising or publicity. So we thought it the worded apt and catching. So uh, just to clarify then, this is us kind of having a, a, know, a knowing wink at the fact that video games spreading into other media is often um, a cynical means of, of getting more of our cash. Is that what we're saying, Andy? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, they create these IPs and they're all over the place. Uh, I'm here on this inaugural episode about a book spin-off of a video game series having never having not only not read this book but <laughs> I have never read a spin-off book of a video game ever and I haven't even like I'm a huge Star Wars fan and I haven't even read an extended universe book I read a lot of books I've just never read any video game books so I'm hoping tonight you guys can can sway me over to this extended universe sort of because uh, there's a lot of ones out there that are highly regarded some of the, the Dragon Age books and the Halo books yeah. and things like that are supposed to be pretty good I've just never read one so sell me on this book tonight yeah so <laughs> so as we're doing a bit of kind of like reverse engineering in the sense yeah. that possibly as I'm sure kind of Andy explained as being his sort of brainchild we're hoping that either yeah people who are currently playing these games and are familiar with a lot of these ip might want to kind of ex- extend their enjoyment or their kind of enrichment i guess by immerse themselves in the expanded media of those franchises or as is probably more the case for myself and maybe some other listeners you you hear about these obviously highly regarded franchises without having having a history yourself personally with playing through all the games so i have read the book <laughs> luckily um, just literally finishing moments before we record but i've got a very limited actual personal experience playing the uncharted games i think i've probably got about how many chapters off the top of your head was in the first one drake's fortune do you know uh, roughly i don't know that was the only one don't i know. haven't played see i'm coming oh, in okay. from the, <laughs> the perspective of not having read the book but having played uncharted 2 uncharted 3 and uncharted golden abyss all three of them multiple times so. Right, okay. Well, I, let's say there was about 15. I think I got just over halfway. So that's pretty oh, okay. much my only that's kind cool. of game in it, in introduction to it. So, yeah, I guess possibly by covering some of this expanded media of these franchises, we may be able to sort through um, the kind of duds and find some of the hidden gems that might kind of invigorate someone to, uh, you know, pick up the controller and play one of these games. I think that's generally what you were sort of saying to us off off air, Andy, what this kind of, uh, the, the kind of, I don't know, ethos is behind this new series of spin-off shows of LGR. Yeah, I mean, we've just, you know, I decided to think about it. I mean, we're all lapsed gamers at some point, and we have been. 
um, in the past or whatever. And sometimes, well, as you know, as we get families and other things encroaching to our time, we really don't have the time to sometimes devote to video games. But we sometimes go, ooh, I quite fancy that. I quite like the look of that. And, for example, if you're looking at um, Dragon Age, if you're going to play the whole series from Origins to Inquis- Inquisition with all the DLC... Yeah, good luck. You're probably... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably looking at 220 hours plus worth yeah. of video games. Yeah, but if you look around it, there's a few novels, mm-hmm. there's a few comic books, there's um, a few world guides um, there's a couple of half an hour TV specials so which probably take less time so it's us, our way of helping the listeners and ourselves to say you know you might like be interested in Dragon Age World hmm. you don't have to go off and play the video games but you can go off read a book or you can go off watch a little TV special for it and enamour yourself in the world and if it in intrigues you you might want to go well yeah I quite fancy playing that game you know devoting some 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 gaming time to it or you might just love Dragon Age so much that you just want to get yourself into this expanded universe Hmm. or the ballyhooness of it all (laughs) and um, (laughs) just go off read all the books you know immerse yourself deep into the lore and the world and but you just I haven't got the time because you're playing so many other video games but you might think well that sounds interesting I will just go off and do that mm. yeah no, and, I, and I you know I think you've come up with a really good idea Andy because it's all about again feeding into our hope that we can make gaming more accessible to our listeners and, and more enjoyable for those of us that are still currently playing and I think that you know these sort of occasional specials dedicated to you know other forms of media are, you know, are going to be really interesting especially for the likes of myself and I'm with Mark in the sense that I've had I don't think I've hardly read any um, expanded media products certainly not kind of books based on video game IP and I'm, I'm thinking that you've already Andy kind of laid out some ideas for us that we could have episodes on um, not just books but comics or even soundtracks um, films TV yeah. shows ball games you know anything like that yeah anything else we can crowbar in that's attached you know to an IP from a video game we will get into it you know any suggestions from the listeners are more than welcome for us to you know look at but hey if it's got that IP address on it we'll go off and look at it and we'll come back to see um, what we'll tell you what we think about it yeah, so what the ones to avoid and the ones that, you know, might be worth your time. <laughs> yeah. So I take it at some point in the future we're going to go off and watch both the Hitman films and then do an episode about that, right? Yep, yeah. we're going to um, point <laughs> Kev to do that. Yeah, let's, let's not. <laughs> That's supposed to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's the challenge with these, I think, because there probably is a, an established consensus that a lot of this expanded media stuff isn't necessarily of the highest quality. So we, we're hoping possibly to suffer some of the duds on your behalf and then you know highlight the ones that are unexpectedly good <laughs> and give you a better sense of appreciation of the actual games themselves. Speaking of the unexpectedly good, aren't, aren't you and Kev are uh, sort of uh, admiring fans of uh, the Silent Hill film, aren't you? Very much so, yeah. yeah. And that, but again, I mean, I'd love to cover that one on the show with people that are much more well versed in the games because I think my unexpected <laughs> appreciation of that film is purely on a cinematic basis, yeah. as in terms of it's one of the one of the, the few modern horror films that was able to really evoke and capture 
an unsettling atmosphere. So I've really kind of appreciated just purely on that level. Um, whereas I'd love to know, you know, what people who have played the games think of, you know, what they did with the narrative and how they actually kind of took wholesale almost verbatim certain imagery and soundtrack cues but no i, I mean that's due a rewatch. I, I, i'm more than happy to clash heads with people over that because <laughs> that probably is a film that gets washed in with all the other kind of film tie-ins as garbage whereas actually i think it's got you know some some merits that are worth championing hmm. Yeah, well, we've also got a really nice little Super Mario Brothers movie to <laughs> No, please God, no. <laughs> <laughs> and a lifetime of, like, Pokemon and Digimon that you yeah. can get to. <laughs> That's it. But there are video game films coming out in the near future who are yes, being directed yes. by well-respected directors. I mean... And starring, you know, hot A-list talent now. Yeah. Well. You're right. Yeah. Um, there's the World of Warcraft film coming out, uh, directed by Duncan Jones, and there's the um, Assassin's Creed film coming out, directed by... Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Uh, well, he's, and yeah, star- and he's starring in he's it. He's the star, and obviously then he's, his current squeeze, or I should say significant other, has just been cast in the Tomb Raider reboot movie. Yeah. And uh, the um, Assassin's Creed film is being directed by Justin Kurtzel, who did that uh, very well-received adaptation of Macbeth in 2015. So, yeah, with Fassbender. Yeah, yeah, so big directors and big names getting attached to video game IP uh, all of a sudden. Well, when there's money to be made, as Andy, yeah. you know, rightly dubs it, Ballyhoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> when I was looking for that, you know, for something quite more exciting, because we had game spread, I thought, you know, that's a cool word. Uh, it just, I just every time I say it, it just reminds me of tally ho. Yeah, I think we did. <laughs> we had a whole list, didn't we, of possible suggestions, like something around media and universe and expanded. But you know, fortunately, we went for that. It ended up being a bit of a, a homework session, as Andy is the teacher, because not only is he getting us to like look up unfamiliar words in the dictionary, you know, he's setting us a book to read. And I did feel <laughs> like I was cramming my homework in at the last minute <laughs> to get it read. <laughs> so I hope to avoid a detention. Hmm. <laughs> I don't like staying back after school myself, so I don't give many of them. <laughs> We're all coming at the IP of Uncharted at different um, times, and we've all experienced it in different ways. So, Lee, how have you experienced the Uncharted IP so far? Well, I think really it's synonymous with my experience of the PlayStation 3. I can just remember having ne- not getting one at launch because I think it was inordinately expensive at that point. Um, just hearing how good the graphics were in Uncharted being, you know, how was the exclusive that really kind of showcased the, the capability of the console. I mean, how many, how many um, years or months into the life cycle of the PS3 did the first Uncharted come out? It was, it was pretty early, wasn't it? 2007 if it was a launch title was it uh, well, right okay uh, when did it the playstation came out in 2006 I think so I think it was, it was a launch, launch, launch window yeah or probably yeah. was intended as a launch title but I mean that that's when I became not only aware of Uncharted but really looked at the console with a I guess with an envious gaze <laughs> and uh, I was fortunate enough to to play it around my brother-in-law's and I got quite far into it, and it again kind of like my immediate point of comparison would have been Tomb Raider games but um, of course like many at the time the enhanced graphics but also some of the um, you know they're just like little innovative quirks that 
uh, Naughty Dog were, you know, they, they weren't just copying wholesale Tomb Raider. It felt like there was more going on, or it, it had a, an appealing sheen, I guess, of that whole kind of cheesy 80s uh, kind of action hero. And I guess we'll get onto more of that in, in, in a sense later in the fact that, in some respects, Nathan Drake is very much a kind of derivative character of the likes of people like. Um, uh, Harrison Ford and like the Indiana Jones films and I think Nathan Fillion's name and like you know how Nathan Fillion's demeanour in things like Firefly and Serenity could you could easily kind of visualise that as a, as a Nathan Drake type character so yeah I mean all of that kind of just appealed to me and I did play it you know like I say I think I got you know just over halfway um, I then I since did pick up a PS3 and I did get Uncharted but bizarrely I think what happened is there was an update to the PS3 that introduced like these little sparkly effects on the um, the, the kind of start-up menu, and uh, that actually caused Uncharted to freeze. So what you know, inevitably there was a patch, like there was an update to the. Uh, you know, you hear all the time when there's an update, people saying their PS3's been bricked and things like that. Well, it was one of those occasions, and it was that game that kept freezing. And um, I think it, my save file might even got corrupted at that point, so I just never ever went back to it. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is you know no excuse really I guess but no that's it really so I've kind of enjoyed half of the game thought it was absolutely brilliant at the time <laughs> and then just never bothered going back although I have got um, Golden Abyss now and because obviously we're going to play that for the playlist so I'll probably now having read the book <laughs> I'm doing it all kind of out of order I'll read the book play that Vita game first and then I'll, I'll go back and pick up Uncharted 1 because uh, I'd love to do those games with you guys you know I think that'd be an interesting thing for us to do as potential playlists of the entire you know franchise over time but that's me yeah very limited <laughs> experience <laughs> okay Mark how did Drake seduce you into his arms yeah he didn't for years he didn't <laughs> um, PlayStation came out uh, and I I didn't actually get j- jump onto the last generation of consoles until I got my Xbox 360 the day before L.A. Noire came out because that was the game that broke me and made me jump from PC gaming to, to getting console because at that point there was no announced console release of that game. Um, and one of the... Uh, uh, but then uh, later on I got a, a PlayStation 3 um, in its pretty much in its final year before the PlayStation 4 came out because... There was just finally enough um, exclusive titles coming out that I kind of had to get one. And the big one was another Naughty Dog title, The Last of Us. I, I needed to play that game. So I ended up getting a PlayStation 3. Um, and I'd been a long-time fan of um, of uh, Naughty Dog. I played the, old, the Jack and Daxter on PlayStation 2 and then the uh, Crash Bandicoot games on the PS1 before then. Uh, and I'd heard how great Uncharted was, but didn't get it for ages. And then Uncharted 3 got released free on PS Plus. Um, downloaded it, played it repeatedly, absolutely fell in love with it. Um, heard from various people about how Uncharted 2 was the best one in the series, so went and bought that, played that through several times, absolutely loved it. Um, got And then Uncharted Golden Abyss uh, was free on PS Plus um, not long after I got my Vita. So down I did that and I played that a few times. Still haven't gotten around to playing the first one. Um, and I'm waiting for uh, a, a nice deal to appear on the, uh, the the Nathan Drake collection so I can play through all three of them, uh, the remastered versions on PS4. But having played 2, 3 and Golden Abyss, um, I absolutely love the series and I, I can't wait to, to, to get my hands on uh, Uncharted 4. Cool. 
For myself, it was um, one of those, I think I got it in 2008, about a few months after it came out. And I was just attracted to the cover. And if you look on the first game, the cover's really distinctive. It's um, green. It's a green cover. And it's quite different from what everything else was at the time. And, you know, picked it up. Like you said, it looked a bit like Indiana Jones. Hmm. Looked quite interesting. Played through it, loved it. Um, sold the game. Um, what day one on Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 3 loved those um, repurchased Uncharted first one uh, played it through again got some trophies um, and just I've just loved the series ever since then it, just a sense of adventure the cinematic scope of it all I just really really loved it um, I've tried to get my mates involved in it he hasn't got around to playing it and then my wife got it for me, the PS4 Uncharted Collection, for Christmas. And it's there waiting for me and my backlog to play before I get four. So, and part of the reason we're doing this book, Uncharted, for our first Ballyhoo episode is the tie-in with Uncharted 4. But instead of looking at the main three games, we thought we'd look at some of it on maybe not so popular or not so um, well-marketed parts of the IP. Let's start us off. Uncharted 4 Labyrinth is by the author Christopher Golden, and we are looking at the front cover of it at the moment. Um, Front and centre is Nathan Drake, of course, in his traditional garb, holding a shotgun and a handgun, pointing at the reader as such. Um, In the background, we have got a skull um, with horns... Um, it's quite integral to the story and sort of like beneath or below the horns is a map that shows a labyrinth or a maze on either side we've got trees on fire Um, and that's about it really anything any comments from you two is it eye catching would it grab you if you were pursuing waterstones or amazon I think if I saw it originally, I'd be drawn to it because I'd think it's a game. Like as mm. in, I'd think it's some like it's somehow it's so much using the kind of art style and aesthetic of the, especially like the character design of the Uncharted games. Yeah, it's, it's it's obviously very clear that it's such a strong association. I mean, it's even got at the top the official novel of Naughty Dog's award-winning video game franchise. So it's not it's not trying yeah. to kind of hide its video game origins. You know, in some cases, I guess literature is meant to be seen as like a higher art form and it might be trying to uh, uh, hide under the carpet the fact that it's based on a game whereas this is obviously very much kind of celebrating it and I, and I guess from the cover or the international cover that we're looking at it's clearly being marketed to fans of the Uncharted games. And that's something that's kind of common throughout uh, when I've seen covers of expanded universe books for video games and the Star Wars expanded universe they try and evoke the feel of the original game and so the covers for Halo spin-off books look like the cover for a Halo game and the same with Dragon Age and and so on and so forth and the Star Wars um, expanded universe books covers look like almost like a poster or the, the, the DVD cover for a Star Wars film it's not a traditional book cover it's a this is part of this franchise it just screams Uncharted at you yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's got the little TM by the Uncharted, and the, the, then the subhead in the Fourth Labyrinth, and then uh, we've just got like the fact it's Titan Books on the spine. Am I right in thinking, Andy? Because I, I get the impression you're probably not only more um, 
familiar with Uncharted and probably this novelization, but also potentially other books that are tied into video games. So is Titan Books, is that one of the main kind of imprints uh, for these types of things? Titan Books um, do a lot of licensed um, stuff. Um, I'm actually just got here by Titan Books, I believe. Um, Back to the Future, the ultimate visual history. So they do a lot of stuff like that. They do... Um, They've done a few Transformers novels, which I've got. So they they do pick up licenses and they do um, publish them with you know tie-ins. Quite yeah, a lot. actually, looking at the the one of the last pages in the book, it actually says they've done things like um, Bioshock Rapture by John Shirley. They've done a Dead Space novelization called Martyr by B. K. Evenson. Uh, Deus Ex Icarus Effect three Dragon Age books by David Gader so yeah they, they seem to be very much you know one of the you know the leading publishers of this type of material um, and then I suppose yeah just to close it out some of the colorization, like you're saying is very much kind of earthy greens and kind of browns that are reminiscent of the the, the first title probably actually yeah. a little bit more subdued than I would have thought you'd have thought they'd have maybe played up some of the other colour palette rather than kind of like the browns because I think we associate the browns and the greys with <laughs> the less interesting <laughs> video games yeah well it's only got a space marine there so it's alright <laughs> well each of the Uncharted games so far has had like a colour theme to it so like Uncharted 1 had a very green cover Uncharted 2 was that there's a lot of shades of blue and Uncharted um Three was very it was lots of orange because it was a lot set in the desert, and then Uncharted Four is quite dark um, on its cover, as you'd expect considering it's the end of the of the franchise. So once you've been enticed by the cover, um, you might want to turn the book onto its back and read the blurb at the back, and it does say here. In the ancient world, there was a myth about a king, a treasure, and a hellish labyrinth. Now the doors to that hell are about to open once again. And then it continues. Nathan Drake, treasure hunter and risk taker, has been called to New York City by the man who taught him everything about the antiques acquisition business. Victor Sullivan needs Drake's help. Sully's old friend, a world-famous archaeologist, has just been murdered in Manhattan. Dodging assassins, Drake, Sully and the dead man's daughter, Jada Huzuchak. I do apologise, I'm going to butcher those names as we go on. <laughs> Race from New York to underground excavations in Egypt and Greece. Their goal? To unravel an ancient myth of alchemy, look for three long-lost labyrinths and find the astonishing discovery that got Jada's father killed. It appears that a fourth labyrinth was built in another land and another culture, and within it lies a key to unmatched wealth and power. An army of terrifying lost warriors guards this underground maze, so does a monster. And what lies beyond? If Drake can live long enough to reach it, it's both a treasure and a poison, a paradise and a hell. Welcome to the fourth labyrinth. There we go, and we're off and running. We're off and running. (laughs) (laughs) As Drake would do. A bit more background to the book. The book was released in October 2011. It came out just a month before Uncharted 3 and two months before Uncharted Golden Abyss. Um, it seemed to be a big, big push by Sony to get the Uncharted IP into everywhere. Cause I don't know if a video, there is a board game of Uncharted, but I don't know if that came out at like the same time. So this was released now, what, five years ago, nearly? 
Oh, that old already, eh? I know. <laughs> so, first of all, um, we are going to look a bit about Christopher Duck Golden and see what we can find out about him, uh, because he is the guy who wrote this book. So, Christopher Golden is an American author. He's written horror fantasy suspense novels for both adults and teens, and he's also writing a series of Sons of Anarchy novels. Ooh, interesting. He's born and raised in Massachusetts, where he still lives with his family. Um, he graduated from Tufts University. He writes comic books. He's written a Dark Horse series, comic series called Baltimore with Mike Mignola. Um, and he wrote the introduction to the now collectible 200 only copies of Joe Hull's book of short stories entitled 20th Century Ghosts. He seems a quite prolific um, author. He's written a number of novels and he's got his own original series. And he's written Hellboy um, books as well. And some Body of Evidence books, Outcast, Prowlers. Any Buffy fans out there? He's written a number of Buffy um, books. Hollow, Battlestar Galactica, Daredevil, X-Men. Um, he's written an alien book as well. A number of comics. Punisher as well. Uh, and, you and, two- and that and that online animated series was um, called Ghosts of Albion. Apparently, is that right? Uh, yeah. Apparently, apparently he, he, he received a lot of publicity or something, or an award yeah. pre pre Europa or something like that, boasting a hundred thousand unique hits per week in its original in its original run. That's when the about the author page in the uh, the Uncharted novel. So, he's quite talented, quite prolific. Um, he's done well. Any of you too familiar with any of his work? No, none whatsoever. No, no I haven't <laughs> read any of these. So I'm looking down his ears. Yeah, he's written a a ton of books. Uh, he's t- covered quite a few uh, IPs that I'm quite interested in as well. Um, Punisher, Daredevil, Battlestar Galactica. Not so much Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting Hellboy. to hear. Yeah, it's interesting to see that he's had a hand in um, sort of some of the scripts, not just for kind of novels and comics, but for video games themselves. So, yeah, I'm ashamed to confess. Yeah, never ever come across his <laughs> come across his work no. with knowingly before. Anyway, no. but quite prolific. He, I mean, experienced. Um, he did mention that he was quite excited to write Uncharted and all that so we're, we're now going to go through the main beats of the story um, there are spoilers involved so if you really do want to avoid um, any spoilers about this book um, go away skip to it. the end because we're giving away a copy of the book yeah. at the end so <laughs> just skip right to the right to the end part and then you know yeah. uh, do as we ask and then you'll get the book sent out to you so you can read it that's it yeah <laughs> but yeah, come back after you've read it, um, and hopefully you will enjoy it. So, chapter one, we find Drake in the middle of another mission, it seems. He's being chased by um, the cartel. He is in, I believe it's Mexico, um, and this seems to be a personal mission for Drake, um, because he got hired to steal um, something called a golden staff of... A manco, but um, the guy who hired him then threatened to kill him. 
so it's seen <laughs> as a personal mission for Drake and it does sort of suggest that Drake um, does take things personally does seek revenge because he does it does say he doesn't like jobs involving theft but he treats this as an exception mm. he, yeah I think we're in Ecuador actually at the beginning is it Ecuador? yeah alright cool because he keeps referring <laughs> back to like the money that he got paid for the Ecuador job right and he's found himself um, with a woman next to him, um, like he does sometimes, but not, on, you know, by accident. Um, sh- who is the mayor's daughter, and the mayor himself is fighting the cartel, and the daughter seems to have been kidnapped by the guy called Raymond Valdez, and Drake, when he was, I think, um, sneaking around the house, found himself in the room with a girl and decided to um, rescue her. She thinks he's res- he was actually rescuing her, but she's just a side note in this. But it shows that he's got a bit of a conscience, you know. It's not just about personal revenge, that he does take this girl on board. Well, that's that's always been Nathan Drake's thing throughout the games. He's like the thief, yeah. the thief with a heart of gold. Yeah, that's it. But doesn't like doesn't like to call himself a thief. thief oh, but he, he totally is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, he calls himself the Antiques Acquisition Business. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that, that's where like, and who we were talking about earlier, about how he has similarities with Indiana Jones. That's one area where he deviates from Indiana Jones in that he is even more roguish and more of a thief than Indiana Jones ever was. Yeah, yeah that, that brings him more in line with like the kind of persona that um, Nathan Fillion's character yeah. in Firefly likes to kind of almost like you know espouse about himself you know he almost does it as a means of protecting his own vulnerability I mean I must confess I don't know how much we're jumping into this straight away but I did find this whole opening bit really just reeks of a book wanting to be a video game Mm. because obviously the uh, the kind of descriptive passages of the action it it, I just it made me concerned to start off with that oh god is this going to be what it's like all the way through because it just felt such a um not a mismatch necessarily between the mediums because I guess I'm not saying that books can't describe action obviously there's been you know there's dozens of examples of really good ones that are able to do that but I don't know I'm not action is not necessarily like my literary genre of choice and it just really stood out to me this really felt like a book trying to be a game Um, and I did find the characterisation of the girl that he although there is some um, description of the fact that you know it's alluded to that you know, there's some quite adult themes introduced in the sense that it's alluded to that she could be the victim of rape and that's kind of like yeah. why um, Drake decides to rescue her not just because he's doing the decent thing he's actually you know aware um, of like sort of the, the, the threat to her life and, and, and a fate worse than death that could befall her but I don't know just the way she's described as this kind of like almost like a noxious little brat like the, the beautiful she's they all you know he's going to great lists to describe how beautiful she is but she's like really pouty and a kind yeah. of like, you know a, a, i don't know that just wore on me and i i think i'd be lying if he if i ever felt the golden truly convinced me that of these kind of like female characters in particular throughout the story but i guess is that kind of a criticism is that kind of just goes with the territory of the uncharted universe i mean is it just because really. it is obviously no. kind of 80s sort of cheese no I mean like <laughs> no. I, I, obviously 
I haven't read it, so I, I I can't speak to exactly how it's written in the book. But going from the description you're you're, you're giving, that's not really like the female characters in in the Uncharted games. They're no. at least in two, three, and um, Golden Abyss. They're they're quite strong characters. Yeah, and usually Throughout. more capable than Nathan is himself. Yeah. Yeah. No. In, in his defence, there obviously is a character that becomes much more of a protagonist in her own right. The uh, the Jada character, who ends up being the daughter of the archaeologist that gets murdered in Manhattan. But even then, Golden cannot let like a paragraph go past about telling us about her purple bangs. Like he just constantly refers to her haircut. You know, I feel like sometimes in place of actual characterisation, he just wants to talk about, you know, her appearance. And it's all really heavy handed, like in terms of the, the kind of supposed sexual chemistry between Drake and her for a large part of the novel. There's a scene that where they're kind of walking at night where they've already had a couple of scrapes and, you know, and, and their lives have been endangered. And they kind of have this sort of moment of sharing a little bit of insight into their past and it's just so clumsily done like it's almost like <laughs> vomit inducing <laughs> so uh, but fortunately that kind of does settle down and in the second half it's they, they leave that alone it's not about oh whether drake fancies her or not we're, we're almost left in no doubt that he did to begin with but he then comes to see her much more as an equal and i think it does go into what you were saying about how the female characters in the actual game franchise are, franchises are definitely presented as being perfectly capable uh, in their own right because uh, that that's certainly kind of like the arc that that character goes on but i don't want to be too negative <laughs> too early so, so over to you andy uh, no, i actually found the action really good you know i do agree it's like a video game but it throws you straight away in it actually just says it actually shows you so many tenets of um, facets of um, Drake's character there's a banter there's a wise cracking of it allness there's it, I just thought it was a lot of fun I do have to say though I mean I can't remember the start of the other games but it felt Bond yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you know I mean you're right actually yeah throwing you into the action is obviously the device that's spread across you know, not just literature, but film, and it works. I mean, that's why they yeah. do it. And, I, and, I, and you've always got to have, like, in any kind of creative writing course or teaching of writing in a class, you always say, you know, have a really strong opening. And I guess it does do that. I, I, I do think possibly it works better if you're more versed in, in, the, in the games, in the character, because yeah. I guess you just run with that. Whereas to me, like I said, it felt jarring for the, the reasons I already gave, but also I wasn't as quick to just accept the banter as, and it didn't, like it grated on me for a lot of it and I think I grew to warm to it because I got so kind of used to it mm. whereas I, to begin with I thought it was again another element that was like really forced mm. and just kind of like didn't I felt it was just a, an author's way of using lazy writing to instead of establishing a real character like a real three dimensional character I think that's actually probably one of my biggest criticisms <laughs> of the book uh, overall I, I never really felt like I cared about any of the characters but is that because I'm having too lofty ambitions and comparing it to you know other books <laughs> that well, I might have read it's like it's a similar sort of situation like the, the Uncharted games have kind of uh, at least the three that I've played have always opened in the similar sort of style to say an Indiana Jones film starts so you've got uh, I can't watch Indiana Jones film it is where he's, where he's going in he gets the golden idol and gets chased by the big ball yeah that's the first one right? the first one yeah, yeah. so like uh, Uncharted 2 starts it opens with Nathan Drake waking up on a train which is hanging off the edge of a cliff uh, Uncharted 3 opens with a deal in a London pub going wrong um, and then a giant fight with whilst uh, Drake and, and Sully 
through clever witticisms around and, and whatnot. Um, and I imagine that's kind of hard to put into words. It's oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not. I'm, yeah, I don't mean to. Yeah, I'm probably being too strong in my criticism. I not think it's a. It's a very difficult feat to pull off, and I do think it's uneven in the book. I think at certain uh, parts the action is, you know, it serves its purpose. But I do think, kind of overall, I don't know for for a book that you know, just as Andy's read the um, blur previously, for a book that sounds kind of like so suspenseful and action-packed and the way it kind of draws in um, some of the kind of escapades you'd expect off the back of the games but also more specific kind of references to to myths and legends it sounds like it's going to be absolutely amazing whereas I don't know I found a large part of it a real slog (laughs) to get through so uh, but that could just be me trying to rush it like trying to read it to a deadline rather than taking my time with it I just wonder sometimes that, or I think we'll maybe discover this as we go on and then look at other IPs and all that, that maybe there's an expectation that people, the authors and the artists and whoever creates the ballyhooness, um, they have an expectation of that people are already familiar with the IP. You know, so you've already played the game. And it's good to see that when you're not that familiar with the Uncharted games to see your point of view and you're coming from a, a different point of view to say maybe it's not always successful in that sense yeah I, I think what I'm probably doing through my unfamiliarity is looking at it as a text and comparing it not to the games but to other novels that I might yeah. have read um, so that that's probably you know an unfair starting point but I did enjoy some of it later on <laughs> <laughs> But like I said, I think this was um, it does start Bond esque because I, I can't remember. Sunshine 2, the start of it, is connected to the whole story, isn't it? If I remember rightly, the train bit. And I think 3 is connected to the whole story, while this is like a separate whole chapter which you don't really return to at all. The only thing that really connects the opening chapter to the rest of the story is the cash he gets. And you yeah, because that, that's a means that allows him to. to uh, navigate other obstacles that arise in the in the main yeah. mystery of the story you're right if he didn't have that money they wouldn't be able to drive the plot forward because they wouldn't yeah. suddenly be able to pay off people and get new identities and mm. you know all of the other kind of aspects you associate with i guess spycraft or kind of adventure yarns yeah i mean the other nut bond reference he goes when the girl asks him his name he goes drake nate drake <laughs> 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 it's like the author's having a nod and a wink to you you know yeah I know this is a Bond opening and I'm going to throw another Bond reference into it as well <laughs> yeah and I guess that does tie into the fact that if you're already a pal of Nathan Drake like if you're already a big fan of the character you'll find a lot of his kind of humour funny won't you whereas I guess you had, I had to warm to it over time because for you know a lot, another way of looking at it is I thought he was a complete twat <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing it's a lot of it um, a lot of what Nathan Drake says is oh, I don't know how to describe it a lot of basically a lot of the charm of the character Nathan Drake is the way that Nolan North voice acts the character basically and then the way yeah. that he's animated in the games and if you just took that dialogue and wrote it down I don't know how effective it would be 
Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good observation because there's even a lot of the banter between him and Sullivan. Now, I obviously will, will rely heavily on you guys as we go through to kind of identify the connections to the games via story and the characters because obviously we are, it's largely new to me. But I know Sullivan is in the first game, Drake's Fortune, and there's endless interplay and banter between them. And again, I just it just grew it grated on me after a while i mean it even grates on another character so it's obviously there by design um because they use it as a diversion tactic to take the um the young woman that they're with his mind off you know a recent bereavement but they're, they're constantly at each other's throats and i know it's all under the spirit of banter but it's just felt so juvenile <laughs> to me <laughs> so that'll be interesting as we get further on because there yeah. is a bit of a um there is a conflict i guess in the sense that i would imagine this would be quite and i'm jumping i am jumping towards the end but in some senses i think this would be quite a good book for someone who might be a reluctant reader um in some respects particularly if someone has played the games let's just say um you know going back to the kind of school theme and homework let's just say you have got someone in their mid to late teens um who is you know not particularly keen on reading if they've got some kind of history with this franchise and they were willing to you know if that could be the hook that would get them into reading a novel i could see this working quite well for them because i do think some of it is sort of aimed at that level but then again on the other hand there's quite you know there is a lot of violence in it and yeah. of course you've then got the complexity of the kind of the myths and legends that are thrown in so i'm not entirely sure actually what the age range that this that, i mean what are the age rating of the games um probably 16 i reckon Oh right, okay, yeah, I would agree. I would say that's probably apt then. Yeah, I think because around that kind of age, I, I could see this actually working, um, and I, I'm all for that. You know, if you can, you know, whatever the materials that people are reading, as long as it's like kind of age appropriate, I think that's only that can only be a good thing. So, I'd certainly give it, you know, respect in that regard. But yeah, I guess for me, reading it as an adult, not massively uh, involved in the, the IP, and also not ma necessarily a massive fan of action like as a genre i think i the, the what that would draw me more in is like the mystery elements but the action is obviously so much the foreground i think mm. of the storytelling the, that and then endless descriptive passages yeah. <laughs> which again i think you've got to have a tolerance for otherwise it's going to be uh, it's a bit of a slog <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so drake basically lures a cartel into a trap the cult quacker tribe round up the cartel, take their weapons, get the staff, give Drake his money, and that is the end of chapter one. Uh, pirates! Nate, be careful. <laughs> Come on, I always am. Ah, I did not see that! And we see chapter two, Drake is full of cash, uh, the most he's ever had it seems. So it just seems to suggest that he struggles quite a lot of the time with money, keeping hold of it, spending it on whatever, but or maybe not just not getting enough from his um, antique business. And on his way back to America, he gets a call from his old mentor, who is really the father figure for Drake, Victor Sullivan, or Sully, as he's called. A little bit of that Sully that he raised him from his teens, and he became, like you said, Lee, it's, it's this why we've got this relationship where they trust each other up to a point but they don't trust each other and Sully took care of Drake when he was younger I think when he was in his teen when he was a teenager but Drake is the dominant partner I would probably say now Sully calls him and says about a murder and it's a murder connected to Sullivan's um, 
one of his best friends, an archaeologist called Luca Hisujak. Luca H. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the godfather to her daughter, his daughter yeah. even, yeah, Jada yeah. H. Yeah. <laughs> I just call him Luca, I just call him Luca. Uh, Luca, who's an archaeologist and college professor, one of Sully's oldest and dearest friends, and he has been found dead in a trunk in Grand Central um, without his arms, legs, or head. Quite a grisly murder. So we see then that um, Drake and Sully meet up and they go to the scene of a crime, and Sully reveals that um, he has Yada. Was it Jada? Yada? Yeah, I've called it, you're right actually, I'm calling her Jada, but it could be Yada. <laughs> Jada. Jada. Uh. Purple bangs, that's all that Golden seems to think is the most important. <laughs> Dot is um, under the care of Sully, and he's got her in hiding at the moment for because he's worried about that she might be attacked next. So we see Drake reminiscing. He hasn't seen her since um, she was 11 and 12 years old. And we are introduced to a few more characters. As First of all, we've got Olivia Hitch, who is a stepmother of Yada, who Yada doesn't love or trust. And we've got Tia Tyre Henriksen. I wonder if you can call him Henriksen. Who is a Norwegian and he's a CEO of Phoenix Innovations and the boss of Olivia, who is also an antique collector. Phoenix um, Innovations is also a weapons manufacturer with a secret research division. Surprise, surprise. So that's their kind of like setup as yeah. the potential suspects or the baddies. Yeah. And then you get that whole thing of like um, where Drake is much. You know, very much associated as like the underdog. Like you were saying before, we get the impression that although he has success, you know, it's always a, a struggle. And he, if he does get some loot from his tools, often it's not enough to set him up for life. Whereas now he's been, you know, he's pitted against this guy that seems to have endless financial resources. And you know, it's very much like you know, the, the we're siding with the underdog, you know, in that scenario. Yeah. And I guess that's that's where you do start to have more... It's, it's an easy kind of, like, goody and baddie dichotomy, so you can, you know, you're, you're on Drake's side, regardless of whether you find him funny or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Sully's feeding Drake a bit of a background information. It's like the exposition, isn't it, of the whole tale to come. Reveals everything about Henriksen, um, like says it'd be underdog, um, and we've got a bit of history saying where Henriksen hired Luca for a private project. Luca did some research, um, got worried, but kept working on the project for himself. Luca was afraid and then has wound up dead, as we said, in a trunk with no head, legs or arms. Yeah, so like, that's one of the uh, instances, again, where I was a bit taken aback at the... Because we were saying before, I was joking that there are some really kind of quite mundane, descriptive passages, but the, the kind of violence isn't spared. There is certainly some kind of graphic detail, um, which, uh, you know, I, I commend Golden on for not pulling any punches, but I guess it would raise possibly the, uh, the age appropriateness of it. But um, that whole kind of thing where we start to learn a little bit about what... Um, um, Jada or Jay, I'll call her, <laughs> her, her father was looking at. I guess that, that does work in the sense it's a, it's a nice tease. And I guess it, it surprised me that they were drawing on such kind of like universally known myths and legends. You know, yeah. I kind of quite like the drip feed that, although this is clearly, you know, a work of fiction and it's taking part, taking place, sorry, within the kind of broader universe of video game IP, it was going to like refer back to these like very dominant um 
kind of folklore that we all kind of know in the real world, so to speak. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought that was an interesting and kind of intriguing element. Do the, do the games do that then? Do the games kind because of, didn't the first game try and tie Drake's lineage in with um, Sir Francis Sir Francis Drake? Drake? Yeah, yeah, so that is kind of like a tried thing. and tested yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I like that that wrinkle to it, the wrinkle to the storytelling. I think that's really quite intriguing, and that part of the mystery, I think, was what was driving me on to keep turning the page <laughs> and yeah. spend more time with these people I didn't like or think were three-dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> I found the most interesting in this chapter and it's throughout the book when um, we see elements where the field are being watched. Um, Golden does describe um, innocuous people. You know, so you've got descriptions of an old woman, an old man, a moped driving past. It's that, and it does that to install the fear that these um, Drake and Sully I mean later Yada are being watched constantly so you get little paragraphs of description which serves no end but what it does it just adds to that sense of um, unease what the characters are are facing as they travel through the fear of being watched I don't know how you found that. Yeah, I want to hold my tongue because <laughs> I found some of, the, some of the pacing off. And I, like I said, I did find it particularly uh, suspenseful. Although, I, I, again, I would say at least Golden gives it his all. Like, I think there is like another... It's like anything. There's a little period of time where you get a bit of description, you know, of the surroundings and of the scene. And then you get a bit of dialogue. And then, of course, there has to be the next action beat. And... It's you know it's quite difficult I imagine to keep making sure you hit that. It's almost like you know you say certain horror films are directed by a rope where you have a kill every fifteen minutes. There's almost like these kind of big uh, passages of exposition and description, and then it's got to be relieved in the readout for through an action scene. And whilst I didn't think some of them come off, um, he certainly kind of commits to it. I think there's like a isn't there like a some kind of street attacker where they're trying to abduct. Um, the Jada character yeah. and uh, that's when we first uh, am I jumping too far ahead because I know that we right. it's been yeah. established that you've got the Norwegian businessman and, and yeah. the stepmother as you know possibly being their adversaries but then it comes into play that there are these I think they're called spooky ninjas yeah. <laughs> in the story <laughs> yeah but the, the, these kind of like hooded assassins yeah I thought that the way that they staged that and you know I guess that was an unexpected turn um, I kind of had some admiration for what he was trying to do there. Once Drake and Sully um, get back to the apartment, we first meet Yeda. She's described as black hair with magenta fangs. Yeah, you like that, Lee? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like, is it like magenta, like pigtail? Is that what he's on about? Like she's got highlights in her no, hair? No, it's framing a face, I think. I thought I seemed to remember. It frames a face. That's why you always get it. Because, yeah, that's what I'm saying. She's yeah. got like these little bits of fringe down mm. each side, and then she's yeah. like keeps putting them behind her ear as he yeah. endlessly tells us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does describe as power in frame. She's intelligent. It does. Uh, she's not a follower of fashion with the boots. It's. A, she's a strong character. She's determined. She doesn't want to. When the Sully, when Sully and Drake try to tell, make her stay behind, she doesn't want to stay behind. She wants to take revenge. She wants to be an active part of the whole tale wants to see why her dad, dad got killed. So in that, for me, it was another strong female character in Uncharted, which is one of the um, strong points of the whole series. So they follow more clues. We've got the first mention of King Midas, who's got the Golden Touch, and they uh, go to the Natural History Museum. And 
here they go through a maze and they hear a cry of pain and they're there to, dis- to meet a professor called Maynard and they discover him dead with stab wounds. So all that is setting up is like a murder mystery, which I did think was a change of pace for the whole series. And I don't think it would work as a video game. Because hmm. if, we, if we think about the video games, video games are right. I know we've got the slow points in Uncharted, you know, when he's walking through um, a village or something, or walking across a desert. But the fact that here we've got a murder mystery of two now bodies. We've got Luca and we've got this professor called Maynard, who we go see then it does add an extra element to it and I suppose it allows Uncharted to um, expand a bit and you could only really do it in a novel or a film. Yeah, that's something, yeah. Nathan Drake never really plays detective in the game. No. Uh, and I, I, I don't think if, if they tried to put it in, they're, they're action-adventure games, they're an Indiana Jones romp, you, you couldn't break, There, are, like you said, there are those moments where then, He's traipsing through the desert in Uncharted Three or in Uncharted Two when he's going when he's walking through the village in uh, in Nepal, but you couldn't put a murder mystery element into. It. Uh, to be honest, the way you've described it there sounds a little bit. Um, oh God, uh, what was that film based on the book with? Tom Hanks with a mullet. Oh, um, yeah. Um, what is it? Well, you're talking about um, uh, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, da Vinci yeah, that's, yeah. It sounds a little yeah. bit Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yeah. And that, I don't think that that would ever end up in an Uncharted game. No. Yeah, although they do do an awful lot of walking around in uh, areas that are described as being incredibly dark. And like I said, some of the pacing is really laden. So that's very comparable mm. to my experience mm. of the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> although I would say that Drake actually is obviously much more. Uh, Sufferable than um, Tom Hanks's character in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything would be. So we see the dead. We see the dead body, recently killed. Drake rushes off after the killer, shows that he's got a good memory, but and he realizes straight away he's not going to catch him. Disappears. Um, he knows the police are going to come, and a bit of bright thinking, he wipes um, all the knobs on the door handles to hide their fingerprints. The student, who's called Gretchen, who led them to Professor Maynard, tells them that there was a connection between the labyrinths of the, two, of Egypt, of the Egyptian 12th dynasty and Knossos, which is the Minotaur one. So now we've got the mention of labyrinths, connecting the labyrinths, and we've got two out of the four labyrinths that are going to be discussed throughout the um, novel. We've also got a lot of um, plot dump, I would say, exposition in this chapter. Um, we've also got the fact that there's um, an archaeological dig going on in Egypt, which is in a place called the City of Cro- Crocodiles, which actually exists. I didn't realise that. Some of the stuff made me actually go off and do a bit of research myself around it, and this place did exist. And the Gretchen, the graduate student, tells Drake and Sully that Luca uh, had visited there, and that her brother is one of the managers of the dig. She also divulges more stuff, like um, there's actually three labyrinths, all connected, built by Daedalus, and there's references to a minotaur now and Luca was searching for the third labyrinth they all suspect Henriksen of being part of it as the main culprits and Jada believes her stepmother Olivia was part of it as well 
So they decide to go to Luca's apartment and there they find it in flames. And then we've got the next action scene. And is this the one where it's the attempted abduction? Is that is that the one? No, this is the one where they're under fire from a sniper. Oh yeah, I see. I remember. This is before <laughs> then. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where the cab driver gets shot and Drake is driving the cab, jumps over the body into the driver's seat, pushes a dead body into the passenger seat and drives off. But another crazy escape in between two police cars, I believe. So it's just another typical uncharted action scene done in military form. Shows that they go with their instincts. Drake admits that he goes with his instincts even when they're wrong. They know how to improvise. As we go on the story, Yeda finds that um, her stepmother is in Egypt, not in New York, despite her husband being being dead. And she finds that Olivia and Henriksen are together. So it deepens her suspicions of Olivia and Henriksen. It's already flagging up that these two are the bad guys. Okay, they hustle a guard to seal a boat. Um, but it shows they are good-hearted criminals, or good-hearted hustlers, because Sully plans to send them cigars or steaks even though the, the banter between them is like, why would he send him steaks? And it's just like, something to eat. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> later echoed again, isn't it? About how yeah. they're kind of uh, adorable uh, adorable criminals, sorry. Or, yeah. you know, like I think you were saying earlier, thieves with hearts of gold because um, Drake pays for some clothes that they need on a fake credit card. But he's, he's, yeah. like, it's, he's, he's at great pains to, or the writers at great pains to explain to us that Drake would always like reimburse them later on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lest we mistake Drake's motivations and actions to be like Henriksen's, you know, there's got to be like this really clear divide going on. <laughs> That's it. I mean, even Yeda questions his motivation. Um, I think she asked him, you know, he mentions the money and she's expecting a bit more from him, but he's not willing to go there. And then we've got something that feels like a TV montage I wrote down. You know, we've, we're going from New York to Portland to Montreal, you know, and via Boston as well, just to get a passport. And we're just, there's a constant mention throughout the book of his connection, what Sully's got. He doesn't make friends, doesn't really trust any of them, but he's got so many connections all over the world that he can get passports, he can get guns, he can get cars, he can get anything. Yeah, actually, that's probably a good point in the sense that although, um, yes, they've got all these connections and they're able to, they can get themselves out of sticky situations. And in some respects, this kind of like adventurous, endangering, you know, risk-taking lifestyle could be painted as like glamorised in some way. You do get the impression that they're all quite lonely. So yeah. like a, that kind yeah. of, um, mm. you know, Nathan Drake, as much as he is a bit of a big mouth and he's always got like a one-liner one ready, he isn't coming across as someone who thinks he's got the world, you know, on his own terms. And, you know, he's, he thinks he's incredibly superior to everyone else. You you still get the sense that he's struggling to, you know, make his own way in the world like everyone is and still has his doubts and, and moments of kind of unhappiness. So I kind of, that actually kind of worked for me in a sense that although they're, they're in one regard, they're going all over the world on this like amazing hard to believe almost ludicrous adventure and they're putting their lives in danger it's not that it's all just like done as a big um uh, as a big joke or it's like a they're invincible in any way it's actually the fact that, that they 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 live this lifestyle but it's not all it's cracked up to be like because i think even sully seems to be a bit of a weary character in some respects of the way that they've you yeah. know the, what the experiences that he's had in his life 
because I think they also the young girl isn't it she, she oh, sorry I should say the young woman although she was a young girl when Drake first knew her and that doesn't stop him giving her the eye constantly for the first half of the book <laughs> um, and that whole kind of like chemistry about them getting too close and Sally yeah. having to be the, the chaperone and all of that but um, yeah she she's almost getting to know that sense that idea like on the one hand she thinks they're these you know really kind of larger than life characters but she does get more of an insight into um their motivation like you're saying it's almost like a, that's a shield that drake puts out that it's all about the money whereas it really isn't about that way soon becomes far more than that to him in this story that does show uh, at least a, a decent amount of understanding of, of, the, of the characters uh sully is in the games he's he's sort of like that character that doesn't matter where in the world they are he always knows a guy who can get them this or get them that that they need and nathan himself is you get the impression as the series goes on that he really and it's something that, that uh, comes up a little bit from what I saw in the trailers for Uncharted 4 he really struggles to settle down and have a settled life and deep down he kind of craves the adventure at the same time is also kind of weary of it and maybe sometimes uses sometimes uses his humour and the, these wittier sides to mask the fact that he's he's um I don't know. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but uh... well, it's, it's that whole idea of like the the character. It's like a, a, an archetype in some respects, and there is there is like some genericism to their their characterisation. But that idea that Drake seems to be this sort of character that has to be perpetually in motion because if he stops yeah. and has to look too hard, he's he's all too aware of his vulnerabilities in a way, and it's almost yeah. you get the impression that obviously Absolutely. something major yeah. happened to him. I don't think they really get into it in the novel. I think it is alluded to. But it's almost as if, yeah, it's a way of not having to deal with himself, you know, by, by you know, just you know, constantly moving forward. But there is that, I like the way that they do get a sense there. They don't fool themselves. They've got all these connections. They're getting all, they're setting all of this in motion. They're really, you know, surviving against the odds. But they know that somebody could come along and pay their same connections more money. And then that, yeah. that loyalty will be turned against them. So there, there is that, like you were saying before, Andy, that you like some of the kind of suspense of how Golden describes these periphery characters and gives you a sense that they're under surveillance yeah. there, there is that element of kind of like danger and that they are they're almost winging it because they really don't know who to trust you know and it's only as good they're, they're the people that they're working with Lord, is only as good as them and as the money will go you know and we're always being sort of told that drake's bounty of cash is forever dwindling you know by you know, <laughs> the chain of events that he's found yeah. himself involved in well, you see some aspects of his childhood in uh, it's Uncharted 3, um, or you see some flashbacks. It is Uncharted 3 where you have the flashbacks yeah, of Drake of as a start, child. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, before he meets Sully, and he was an orphan and basically a bit of a street rat, uh, a thief, and was betrayed by people at a very from a very early age. And so he's kind of he's not a particularly well-rounded individual to be honest um, no. and so yeah he, he does come across a, a, especially in the, in the games I don't know how well it comes across in the book but it comes across in the games as being using his humour as a mask for being quite a broken man really yeah I mean it's, I, was, I just said when you were talking about it I just got this feeling of um, Batman Bruce Wayne you know mm. in, in, in another way we don't actually know what happened to Drake's parents but we do sort of get hints that it was something quite dramatic I mean yeah yeah they does ask him at one point can you tell me about your parents and he sort of deflects it and moves on and we talk about him not being unable to stop it's almost like 
Bruce Wayne became Batman to cope with his parents' death. Drake's coping with his whatever trauma he's suffered by always, be, like you said, always being in motion. He can't just settle down, maybe accept the family life. You know what we've seen from the trailers in Uncharted Four that he just needs he, cra- he craves the action and he's not comfortable with himself no. in his own mind when it's in his own company he can't stand the peace because he's always probably churning something in his memory or in his mind over and over again yeah that's that's another way in which he kind of differs from the Indiana Jones characters that you couldn't ever see Nathan Drake settling down and having a family and getting a desk job um, he because he would just he just constantly be itching to go out on another on another adventure yeah so we also get one of these one of Lee's favourite moments where um, <laughs> I think it's quite creepy actually. When I read this, I thought when Drake is actually watching Yeda um, while she sleeps and is contemplating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I can't remember the particular um, context of that scene now. But like, again, let's not remember. Let's not forget that this was like a child that he knew uh, yeah. back in the day. So there's definitely like. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like inappropriateness but also it seems to be that way with all the women in in the book there's all i don't think any woman of character that's got lines of dialogue can be spared at some point in time this innuendo from drake or the way it's even no. written he doesn't even necessarily have to be suggestive in the way he talks no. to them the way golden writes it at least at one moment in time during the, he, drake's interaction with that character he's thinking about you know would i fuck her obviously it's it's, you know it's hidden behind a lot of spiel but Mm. ultimately that's what it's all about because i think you know again that gretchen character you mentioned i'm sure all of the women or the characters that got the female characters that got dialogue all of their physical appearances are, are dwelt on in some way and it's like you know Olivia. Oh yeah, she's like this wicked, terrible stepmother. But God, her legs are really shapely. Oh yeah, like in her clothing. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that's not like Drake in the in the games either. Um, he's always around women characters, and he has a few love interests over the series. Mm. But he's he's, he's not lecherous. No, he's not a lecherous character <laughs> at all, really. Um, I think that some of yeah, I think some of the narration is not Drake's in the novel. That's all I can say. I think some of it is just. Golden's description, so I'm possibly shouldn't put all of the guilt, uh, all the predatory glances on Drake's shoulders. I'm going, to, I'm going to go like, first of all, if you imagine that, imagine walking around playing the video game on Child and Drake's going, oh look at her over there, yeah. her over there, look at her legs, wow. <laughs> You'd be you, you'd be creeped out as when you're playing that game. That would not get past. But then but, uh, most of the women characters in the games either they're not portrayed as being like you know traditional stunning beauty wearing a a slinky no. dress or anything like that they all, they all wear like you know chinos and a and a shirt because mm. they they wear basically the same sort of clothes as uh, as uh, Drake and Sully wear yeah and yeah there is and yeah there is and yeah there's described as wearing practical clothing her stepmother um, on the other hand, I think when you first meet, meet her, is wearing more of a flowing dress and mm. more attractive late forties. Golden describes her, but I will defend Golden though because if you, he did say, and we have to remember this: this isn't his own character. No, he did say he worked closely with is it Anne Hennig uh, yeah, at, the yeah. time, at the time and Naughty Dog really closely to get the character right. So they had a lot of input into this. And if they didn't agree with what he wrote, he would would have had to change it. So I'm going to defend him because it's not his character. It's, it's 
Well, also from from what you've been saying, that the, the book, at least so as far as we've gotten, has taken place in you know you said it's, it jutted around all over the place, uh, New York, a few other cities in America as well, uh, and that never really happens in the games, apart from no. the beginning of Uncharted Three, where there's a section in in the back streets of London. It the games always take place, you know, out in the desert or the jungle or halfway up a mountain, mm. so you don't really come across many characters who would be wearing a long flowing dress no <laughs> I think I mean just I don't want to labour the point because uh, I, I just think I guess what I'm saying is um, a lot of the description by you know Golden whether it's written from the perspective of Drake or another character like Sully so to speak is that it is very the women are definitely it's not it's inescapable that as, as independent and as um, as much agency as some of the female characters are given it, you can't escape almost the, the juvenile aspect of it or the cartoony nature of the fact that they are all talked about in terms of their physical attraction at some point and no, it, that doesn't ever come across in Sully's character in the game but I've always had a feeling that he would be the sort of character you probably would be like, oh, she's a bit of all right. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he talks about... He's, yeah. They ca- they think he's been abducted like, yeah. later on in the novel and then they discover that he's chatting up um, like a woman on the uh, um, neighbouring balcony and like, yeah. he does say to Drake, smoking hot, am I right? You know, about her. And I think Drake says something like, you know, without question. So there's there's definitely like a real kind of laddish... Um, element to their kind of bravado in the novel which I mean is it all depends on your tolerance of that stuff it's not and equally you could even argue that you know you could deem it kind of like politically incorrect and you could say there's some gender problematics in the in the meat in this book I mean but so many aspects of popular culture are, are guilty of that but on the other hand you could say um it kind of like just fits in with the the kind of tone of the piece rightly or wrongly it is kind of like a bit cartoony and a bit kind of, uh, I want to say, almost simple in some respects. And some people have got a much higher tolerance for that because they they would take it as part and parcel of the, um, you know, watching an old 80s action film, like an old Arnie movie. There's definitely, you know, political incorrectness or kind of like uh, gender problematics in some, of, in some of those films, but it doesn't in itself rob the entire text of its enjoyment. So no. I don't want to say that it's like so, so much of a objectionable bit of content that you can't get past it. I think it's just that it's repeated on occasions where it's not needed. And I think that, that, that again, I, I think I just think some of the writing, and it might be because of the form that the medium within uh, how it's being conveyed is just not not up to par like I'm sure if we do more books on video game IP there'd be some that are much better written than this <laughs> but again it sounds like I'm being really really down on it which I don't mean to be <laughs> <laughs> Fine! Pull the cord! 
So, we finally reach Egypt, and there's a bit of conflict here going on because um, Sully warns Drake about flirting and getting ro- romancing um, Yeda. Drake tells Sully basically to be focused and not to be overprotective because if he's too overprotective, he's going to lose his focus and maybe get killed. Um, we get a bit more in depth about that Sully doesn't like Egypt, and we sort of get a bit of a closure on the um, flirting. Between Yeda and Drake, um, who decides it just falls into a friendship at this point. And the what from what I read, Naughty Dog really didn't want to interfere too much with the potential romance of Drake and Elena. That was occurring in the games. So even this, you know, isn't really revealed to be what period it is. They just wanted to keep Drake with Elena and not really having too much of a romance with anyone else. So that's probably yeah, ultimately, the fact that it is just reduced to, you know, this ju- this like schoolboy flirting. Um, that I think I'm thankful for that because I think it, I think the story actually just does get better once I think um, it might even be that they describe Drake and Yada's relationship as more like siblings, or he certainly comes yeah. to see her much more as an equal in terms of, um, you know, like a fellow you know kind of adventurer or fellow person that, that trying to solve this mystery and i think yeah once all that you know nonsense is put to bed the things can get uh, move on in a greater direction you can get into the heart of the story and, and and working out how these different kind of like myths you know the historical facts and the things that we we regard as myths and legends how they kind of like collapsed in on one another um becomes much more the focus mm. But then again, I never got the feeling that Drake never viewed Yeager as not an equal. I mean, there's a little quote going, going, she knows Aikido and Drake goes, great, another woman who can kick my ass." <laughs> so uh, I never got the feeling that he treated her less or anything. He did see her as an equal. Yeah, sorry, you're right. Okay, he, he, he was no longer, we no longer were at to be subjected to these like, oh God, is he going to get hold of her or not? The kind of passages. <laughs> um, you're right. He, he and, he, and in fact, actually, he does take Sully to task as well and say, I yeah. know that you've got like a paternal feeling towards her, but actually, you know, she is more than capable of looking after herself and we need you to be fully alert. Otherwise, you're yeah. going to, you know, you're going to end up getting yourself killed or us. So you're right. Um I, I would agree with that's a good point that you made. So what we get, yeah, we get Sully describing Nate and Yeda's closest thing to family, which suggests that Sully, like we've said earlier, is a very lonely man. Uh, later on, we do see some sort of hint that he has been involved in relationships. Um, once again, we get the menace described, you know, in Egypt by Golden, describing innocuous details or what we would say. Um, wouldn't be very important but they're there then they get into the hotel where Lucas stayed and they find his journal eventually in room 271 there Yeda gets really angry um, Drake diffuses it by being charming you know the charming rogue and they get more notes about the labyrinth of Sobek it confirms that the three labyrinths were designed by Daedalus of Greek myth and there's something called the mistress of a labyrinth who gets tribute. We get more tribute than the gods who the labyrinths were dedicated to. There's also the first mention of a fourth labyrinth and the mention of something they call honey. And we're not too sure what that is. Um, we, we then progress where they go meet the brother of Gretchen who is called Ian Welch. It just seemed a typical thing. It just reminded me of Jurassic Park. 
Um, Finn looks American, doesn't know how to fit in. The guy who is in, um, what was it called, who meets Nedry um, from the other company and is dressed in a hat, a big Hawaiian shirt, just like typical American, doesn't know how to fit in again. We get more yeah, all the for, um, the Denim Elliott character from yeah. the Indiana Jones films as well, yeah. where he's walking around, isn't he, <laughs> like, in an Arab country, like in a white suit, <laughs> sticking yeah. out like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah. Welk himself doesn't know anything about the fourth labyrinth, and there's an interesting commentary here, coming from Golden, where he talks about how the past um, experts, so-called experts, have damaged stuff by restoring it. And it seems he's quite angry about it. So when this labyrinth was discovered, they replaster it to try to make it look like it used to be, but they destroyed loads of things. So that seems to come from the author himself. Once again, we get a bit more exposition, a bit more dumping of the information. We get Minos and Midas, the ancient Greeks, who were considered the same. We discuss whether Daedalus got the, um, got the touch to turn stuff into gold and not Midas himself. They discuss how workers were paid in gold and that Daedalus vanishes with the gold. So we've got all this mystery building up and quite a lot of history coming through and a lot of layers there, a lot of myths being connected. Yeah, and the and the, uh, the kind of old, the concept of alchemy and things like that. So yeah. he's clearly done his research. It, it, however sophisticated or clumsy, depending on your perspective, you find how they interwave these like myths and those kind of historical aspects to the novel I, I think it, it does work to build up some kind of intrigue it does feel a bit more uh, unusual and kind of out of the ordinary and I guess it does take on a larger than life aspect like I presume the action of the games they're, they're, they're kind of ludicrous if you stop and look at them for a second and you think god none of this would ever happen but um, I guess it helps that you get kind of sweeped up in these these big kind of grand myths and like it's brilliant when they started talking about could the presence of a minotaur in the real world I was like yeah this is absolute nonsense but I'm enjoying it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think you have to go a different route because you can describe actually in a novel but it's not going to be as immediate as it's maybe some in a video game if you've played the Uncharted video game so I think you have to look at it elsewhere and how do you get that, that enticement in you get it probably through making links of different historical parts around the world and myths and linking it into myths and layering it and he did say in an interview that this was at the time when it was written his most researched book you know he had to look everywhere and it does we do go on a quite a journey around the world yeah and it certainly raises the stakes of the plight you know the the current perilous situation that drake and his associates are in because it ties in you know, not just with their immediate futures, but this whole idea that it could change our understanding of history. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, so we get a first view of Olivia. She arrives, um, described as alluring. Olivia's upset. Drake's wondering whether it's an all an act and all that. But Yeda walks out, storms out. Drake follows her, and we end up on a struggle or with a gun. Yeda being kidnapped by some mysterious goons, as they're called. Yeah, the spooky ninjas, the the strange hooded army. Yeah, and they do they do appear. What does come through again? Because in the Uncharted games, we do get a lot of flanking. You know, Mark will be well aware that enemies do try to flank you quite a bit. Oh yeah, and yeah, and in particular this action scene, they do mention it does. Golden does mention flanking quite a bit. Yeah, and cover, and <laughs> like there's also cover, mention yeah. of like specific weapons, which I presume 
are favoured by Drake in the games, like yeah. his Glock and things like that, and how many bullets actually I think it can even take in its round. So I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but just reading it, I, I presumed that was like to tie in with people's experience of playing Drake in yeah. the games. Yeah, in particular the flanking, the cover, and all that. Also, Drake mentions, and I thought this was quite fun out to have a laugh at this. Is a half decent shot, not a marksman, and that just brought to mind all the complaints about how <laughs> oh, uncharted, gosh, yeah, yeah um, the aiming system's rubbish. So the writer got a little nodding, you know, like yeah, even Drake said himself, he's not that good, you know, he's not going to be an expert marksman. I just had to laugh at that. No, he's like I'm a just... stormtrooper, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and so basically. Yeda's rescued by um, this group of um, hooded assassins. They appear out of nowhere with curved knives and they tell her to go home. And we end on that note, on this chapter. Yeah, so the, uh, the who we presumed were the villains have kind of been like unveiled to be uh, you know the baddies in the fact that they yeah. there's these people that um, have torched her father's house previously and then attempted to kidnap her, but then you get these previously unheard of uh, party that have also got a shared interest in what's going on and they take out you know Yarders would be abductors after the fight they look around Olivia's disappeared which heightens their suspicions a bit more also the next day they're a bit confused that no mention of this fight is anywhere and they all agree that Henriksen's behind it all so they're our chief villain once again from into the centre is Henriksen. Once again, we get a bit of a joke about Drake being sh- being shut up for once by um, when Yeda kisses him on the cheek. So does mention he's, he never shuts up, which suggests you know uh, there's a bit of thing in the game where he does constantly run his mouth off. What I mean is that is that element is that I can't remember, but when that happens, is that again trying to show us that um, you know it's more like what a friend might do or like a sibling might do, like you're thanking them because yeah. you know they're in it together now, like they've had their lives friends, you know, like that bonding between people who have been victims of some terrible event or something like that, rather than you know I don't know. It's, there's another nuance now to their relationship. Yeah, it does, okay. and once again it links it back to the video game, you know, where Drake never shuts up. And he's constantly bantering and constantly thing, but in the book it's it is slightly different. They go now to visit the dig, um, and they're let in through the side door by Welch, and it's a bit of a ticking race against the clock because Henriksen has just been made the spon- full sponsor of the dig, and he's going to come in and try get all the clues to the next labyrinth so they only have a limited amount of time. So you get this description of going through the um, labyrinth, discover the honey which was given to the protector of the labyrinth, and this was the monster at the, at the heart, who was a killer and seemed to have horns, which suggests it was a minotaur. Drake, in a moment of clumsiness, or tries to help, um, just down a priceless vase, manages to dislodge sand and finds a minotaur painting. Um, they also find a skeleton, and when they open an entrance underneath an altar, with a large skull and horns and then we get Drake mentioned tequila for some reason um, which goes on to say it's a bit of character makes he suggests stupid things which suggests that he's drunk quite a lot of tequila and I thought these little touches um, add a little bit more depth to his character because you know it's so fast paced even the book you know I know it leaves suggests it's quite slow but we've gone from New York via Boston Montreal and we're in Egypt and it's, we've gone through an action scene, we're into the 
into the labyrinth. And these moments have just sort of just added a little bit more depth to his character. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Like I say, I feel like it, you, you imagine it's going to be like this incredibly breathless page turner. But um, I, I genuinely don't think for large parts of the reading of it, it felt like that. And um, I don't think it's any coincidence that only yourself and I read the book <laughs> managed to get to the end so I, I mean I don't know I don't want to put words in their mouth but I, I would have loved to have heard from Adam um, and a few of the others that started the book to, as to their reasons of whether they just ran out of time or did they felt it was laborious and that they, they weren't willing to you know continue on but um, something that just occurs to me now that you're talking about that idea that Drake um it feels like you know yeah if you're drunk you say silly things or you're referring yeah. to that tequila i suppose that does tie into one of the revelations i mean not only there's loads of revelations about you know of course how there's another labyrinth that no one ever knew of before yeah. and the actual existence in the real world of creatures such as minotaurs although again that does get kind of like explained later on but there's this idea tying back to the honey which i won't reveal now i don't know whether we are going to spoil it later on but there is this idea of being under the suggestion or yeah. under the influence of something and how that can alter one's perceptions and behaviour. So in a, in a kind of way that I didn't realise at the time, you could argue that's a bit of clever kind of like foreshadowing on the part of Golden. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of hints dropped and there's a lot of like, almost like false trails that um, you think and then a few chapters later, you sort of like whisked away, you know, like your certainty. You think, well, what? God, there. like being led led down the wrong turn, a dead end in a maze. Oh, that's yeah. really clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this book has got hidden depths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's part of the old, old charm of a book. I mean, we do get a number of references to other meat, other other. Um, modern culture we've got an Elmore reference here uh, yes actually you're right there was quite a few loads of references to like their Sully and Drake's mutual love of old films and um, there were yeah not not just the Elmo one and that the, the, um, Elmo would be pleased that somebody knew their maths or something yeah. um, there was other there, I'm just trying to think now there was definitely other references the to Star Wars one yeah that's it yeah about and yeah no of course that it's a trap yeah I yeah. know Stuart will listen and I'm sure he'll be very pleased about the Admiral Akbar yeah. it's a trap line yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I mean it does tie in a lot I mean makes it more relevant so I found that you know really attractive you know, to the book added a bit more depth to it. Yeah, there's there's definitely an interesting like mismatch between you've got like this really kind of almost archaic um, history on the one hand, and it, which can read some. I guess mm. the book the book never reads overly academic because that's if anything it's the complete opposite of that. <laughs> but what <laughs> I mean is like I suppose in a way that's kind of that that's that, that works. Like you've got like you're saying the pop culture references and somehow they're juxtaposed with this deep referential material to. King Midas and you know myths like Perseus and the Minotaur and the mazes and but I think that counterbalance I suppose yeah you, is needed otherwise it could either be too um, kind of just empty like separate you know just constantly aping references without any meaning but or it could end up being like too it's steeped in kind of like the history and if you're not if that's not your interest then I think you're going to find it really hard um, to kind of access it so. We are in a moment in the second labyrinth, all right? <laughs> this, if people have lost us. Um, the second labyrinth <laughs> is in Egypt. The first one is in Knossos, the original one with a minotaur. This is the second one designed by Daedalus. Here, they find the third one, 
which is located on Infira, which is Santorini, which is meant to be a very good holiday destination, I understand. Fira itself was destroyed by a volcano, but there's only one archaeological dig ever taking place in Fira, and it's at a place called Akatori, which one historian or archaeologist has theorised that this could be the legendary place of Atlantis. So that's another bombshell when you're reading it. You're like, they're throwing in Atlantis as well. <laughs> but it's all based on fact. It's actually, this people have theorised that this could be could be a place for Atlantis. He hasn't just made it up, it's actually other people, and he's just gone, oh, that sounds a good idea, and I'll throw that in. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's little things like that. I was like, well, you know, it is based on, you know, on what his people have thought about. Once again, we get this um, thing with Drake being always sarcastic, so he's attacked by Yeda a bit, you know, he can never take anything seriously. They don't find any gold. This is a constant thing, because they think it's, they're going to find some gold, but they never find any gold in these um, labyrinths. And once again, when they get to the end, they are attacked by the hooded men and women. And here, instead of killing them, they seem to be doing something quite different and they're trying to kidnap them so they're not armed and the manager of a site Ian Welch who is the brother of the woman back in New York called Gretchen he's kidnapped there's a lot of hand wringing because they feel guilty of making him you know making him acquiesce to help them and now they're responsible for him getting kidnapped yeah I mean it does come a lack later but and it's quite interesting it really is quite a lot a bit like Drake's character but it does some it does feel some responsibility but he's like hey it was his choice he didn't have to take us there but he did you know you can't control what other people do uh, you know so it's almost like it's not cold hearted but he is just a saying, pragmatist pragmatist yeah <laughs> he's like saying well he didn't have to help us take us through the side entrance and go all the way down and then go go find the secret entrance hey that was his choice didn't ask him to yeah and it's that whole sense of like in order to survive you've got to keep going you know it's not going to do them any good in the predicament they're in if they are just going to be like paralysed with guilt over something that's happened yeah Um, so yeah yeah, like I said guilt guilt doesn't come into Nathan Drake too much you know and it's sort of like it sort of had a sort of hint of Nathan Drake you know people always say about Nathan Drake the serial killer you know and he does talk about it a bit that he it's people's choices you know he'd probably say hey it was that guy's choice to um, attack me is it my fault I was defending myself you know he didn't have to attack me with those guns he could have just walked away so it's almost trying to um, explain away people's concerns about Nathan Drake being the serial killer and that yeah he does try to differentiate himself from hardcore criminals he does sort of have a heart but if you're in his way you made that choice and yeah I mean that, ha- that that's that kind of ongoing conflict that he mm. seems to be having within himself that gets further magnified the, the longer you go into the novel because yeah. he sees Henriksen as someone who's his complete opposite yeah. and then obviously the more that they get to know one another and the more that he reflects um, it becomes apparent that Henriksen is the sort of person that doesn't care whether people die because of his actions and uh, you know there isn't I think it's very quickly kind of swept under the carpet as part of the uh, tying up the loose ends at the end of the book but I think that there are times where Drake is struggling to differentiate himself yeah. from the person who's meant to be the villain because he kind of sees a similarity in their 
their drive, I guess. Yeah. And how they rationalise what, what their actions are. Yeah, I mean, you see his Henriksen as the guy who doesn't care about people and kills people, but doesn't get blood on his hands. While Drake, in some ways, all right, says it's people's choice, but it does t- care about people as such, and has got blood on his hands. So there's that differentiation between the two. Anyway, Henrik turns up, he's pretty pissed. Drake, being Drake, teases him about all the secrets he's discovered, and walks off. So we get to Santorini next, which is a very nice description by Golden. Sounds like he's been there. Once again, we get the conflict that Drake doesn't like to rip people off. He's going to compensate him at some point. We get the past examined. We get the question about his parents, who he he does fob off. Yeah, he evokes like the lifestyle of the Ronin, doesn't he? Yeah. And again, yeah. that 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 is around the time there's like a really badly written oh, <laughs> romantic yeah. exchange, and it's just like this. Skip over that bit. <laughs> yeah, we'll skip over that. And essentially, if they think the hooded men are going to come take them one by one, then they run back to see if Sully's being kidnapped. They think he has, but he's actually outside on the balcony romancing the woman next door. And he's a bit pissed that they've arrived and destroyed it all. Exactly, you know, because that was his chance to get his end away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nate, just pretend for a minute that I don't really care about any of that stuff and cut to the chase, would you? <sighs> Man only interested in the climax. You must be a real hit with the ladies. Never had any complaints. So they then go to this fortress called Gulas, and this is where they think the labyrinth is. And they search for whole place, um, they can't find anything. Then we've got Drake trying to beat a door down, and even in the game, Drake beats the door down quite, you know, straight away. Here, yes, take a number of run run ups. We've got an action man reference. We've got him actually feeling a bit of pain. You know, he's got suffering. Sully's got suffering in the knee. Drake's got hurts in the shoulder. There's a lot of bickering. There's another. There's a Wizard of Oz, Oz reference with the yellow brick road, and we've got a first mention of flowers. So this is a new item you've you've been dropped into your mystery. So you've, imagine this: you're a detective. All of a sudden, you've got all these clues in your hand. And you're like, what the fuck? I've got all this stuff. So I've gone from minotaurs to honey to potions. Now flowers. You know, he's dropped another thing inside into it. Into it, um, as as we said, there's some sully sexism here. When he uh, asks Jada if she knows anything about flowers, and Jada fires back, "That girls, are, you know, are you sexist? Because is that all you think? What we know about flowers? Well, I'm not like that." We get a bit of silliness with and a bit of a message in terms of vandalism of um, ruins with sully marking their passage with chalk and it's a bit of a dig at people who write their names like Sully was here or you know whoever was here and while Sully just says I'll just put my initials rather than carving it in so they explore this labyrinth and this is the third labyrinth and it's slightly different one in terms of the temperature because Fira is on the volcano so the heat is quite high and here Hipmixon turns up because he's been following them and he hits Sully and here Drake starts to get a bit of a feeling that Henriksen might not be the one behind it from what Henriksen says that he hasn't he doesn't want to kill people and because of Drake's experiences with being fired upon he sort of says something's not quite right here not quite adding up but Luca the old professor with a dead body or the dead torso in the trunk um, worked out 
that it might have been the hooded men like someone was after him but still confused because we've got someone who used guns while the hooded men used knives we get another attack from the hooded men once again flanking involved and Sully is taken at the end of it which makes Drake pretty pissed off throughout for the next few chapters so Mark are you noticing a theme through <laughs> the description of the story do you find it that it's slightly repetitive <laughs> and that it's one, it's one uh, escapade to a labyrinth to another and we're up to three now and there's one more to come <laughs> yeah yeah I'm noticing a pattern emerging <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, maybe four labyrinths might have been too much. I think maybe we should have settled on three. I think four was a bit too much. Anyway, <clears throat> so, we can't find Sully. Sully's disappeared. These hooded men have got secret avenues everywhere, left, right, and centre. They just, they melt, they hide in the shadows, come out, and they've just kidnapped him. But JD and Drake are determined to go get him. So, they go to the altar, they unlock the entrance underneath the altar, and they find once again reference to a fourth labyrinth which is in surprise surprise China so get your passports out yeah. we're off yeah. on another adventure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean there, and there is the whole kind of like um, contrivance of where you know they're trying to find these secret entrances and uh, how they suddenly can happen yeah. upon the mechanisms and open doors just while like you know pushing random rocks in and things like that so there's there's loads of you know stuff like that but I guess it's kind of done again in that kind of almost like a a, a comic book kind of like escapade tone you don't kind of s- stop and kind of question the logic you just kind of go along with the fact that yes Drake would discover something that no one else has for years or even like the experts that are currently there in his company he would be the one who triggers yeah. it by knocking a vase over or by pushing like a, a, a twisting a rock round or something like that <laughs> so you have got to kind of suspend your disbelief just so they can keep the story going but it does sort of fit in with the puzzle elements of um, the Uncharted games yeah, yeah I thought that reading it so I mean the puzzle elements of the Uncharted games are complicated as such but it, like we said, it does fit in. So, they find a reference to the fourth labyrinth in China. Henriksen finds them with Olivia and what I've put down as a Greek goon. <laughs> because Drake calls them <laughs> goons. <laughs> <laughs> we see a break in Olivia from being upset mother, wife to Luca and Yeda. Yeah, because she's always protested her innocence yeah. of not being involved in his murder, yeah. Yeah, and now it's sort of a slip that reveals some sort of hatred behind her visage and all that. The, the mask is cr- cracking. So once again you get a bit, a bit of mystery going on, you know, and then they decide to join forces to find Sully. Okay, that's Drake's main focus now. He's not he's not bothered about discovering fourth labyrinth for such. It's going to be all about Sully from now on. This is his main drive. So they go underneath the altar. They see pictures of men and women being tortured. Um, souls taken to hell called Dayu, which is a Chinese hell, and reference to a maze. And this is actually reference to a Chinese myth from the 12th century. And they um, speculate that Dayu is actually the fourth labyrinth and the fourth labyrinth is hell as such we get something a reference to a specialist called Yabolinsky who works for Henriksen and I imagined him being as this uber geek and they do describe him as being this guy who uh, yeah having like... almost nerdgasms about <laughs> all this stuff that he's finding out because they're taking loads of photographs aren't they yeah. and sending it back and uh, yeah. 
it ends up kind of being that Henrik's that was it there's like a mutual pact in the end that they both need to get to the fourth yeah. labyrinth and discover it and whereas before you know it could have been that Drake was interested in the treasure or at least kind of like finding out what happened or what, what it was that Jada's father had discovered it's much more now about him being able to get where those hooded um, assailants come from so that he can find Sully and it doesn't matter then that in effect he's also going to be leading Henriksen and Olivia to th- their bounty that they think that they're going to get at the end of this journey yeah I mean Jabolinski he doesn't like social contact anymore he only does it through emails he used to be an archaeologist and he just doesn't want to talk to anyone socialise meet anyone um, when we first mentioned him I was imagining Oracle from Batman I don't know if you remember um, Barbara Gordon she was called Oracle of course she I do yeah, spe- yeah. yeah she was a specialist who would would discover all these things for Batman you know help him out and this was this guy and he's, basically he's just a passing mention for a couple of chapters because he ties together some of the clues that they need in the yeah, story. Yeah, it does. Is that outside, you know, person? Because they haven't got access to everything, he can just tie it all in. They speculate once again um, that Daedalus must have escaped to the fourth labyrinth and taken the gold. Yeah, that's it. Because they, they're saying that ultimately he can, he portrayed himself as an yeah. alchemist and ended up almost like hoodwinking like the, the emperors or the kings wherever he yeah. kind of went and said he was going to build this labyrinth it was this idea that he convinced them that he could you know materialise gold and what was it in the end he was saying that, that he could, they could almost use these mazes as their kind of like vaults to yeah. hide their treasure from other people yeah. um, but ultimately they theorised that he, he in fact moved each of the bounties from labyrinth to labyrinth uh, in order to stockpile it for himself that's it. I mean, Daedalus, he, him off um, Icarus theme, you know, the wings and everything. He's the one who basically is called the Greek Combat, essentially. <laughs> you know, going around the ancient world saying, yeah, I'll build this labyrinth for you and I'll put loads of gold in. And then he just swans off to build another one when it's the heat's on. Um, at the end of this chapter, um, we get an explosion which I thought was quite strange because all of a sudden you got these guys who have been using knives uh, start using explo- explosives for the first time so they're not as technologically backwards as you might think and the team, Drake, Yeda Henriksen, Olivia are all trapped the next chapter I just wrote underwater level Yeah, daring escape featuring, uh, you know, swimming and holding the breath for a long time. And is he is is Drake's boots gonna, you know, drag him down? Is he is this gonna be the last of Nathan Drake? Of yeah. course not. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Pushes on, lungs to capacity. Is he feels red? You know, he's like almost fainting, and he finds an air pocket. Brilliant. Well done. So it just reminded me of a typical video game level where, you know, you're just pushing on, you've got your little timer bar going down, you know, like you're running out of air, running out, running out of air, and you, you get there to find another air pocket, and then you move on, find another air pocket. And then he gets a bit annoyed because he has to go back and do it all again. Yeah, I think in I think in talking about sort of Tomb Raider or um, sort of games in the, in the past and previous episodes, you've I think you've mentioned like the invulnerability of 
of Nathan Drake and his invincibility is like as a character as you play through Uncharted. I really did get the impression of that. that there was no point in this story whatsoever that did I think any of the kind of principal characters would come to any harm. But like even when Sally's kidnapped, I didn't think, oh, they're going to find him dead. No, and I find that quite strange in this book because if you play the games... There are points where Drake is badly injured mm-hmm. and there are points where he does drag his body along and he's always complaining about his aches and scrapes and everything. While here, he's like, he's got the golden touch. He's just like, doesn't get touched by bullets, doesn't really suffer too many injuries. But in the video games, he's a lot more battered than he is in this book. Anyway, so we then, Golden does the right thing and sort of skips forward a little bit when we're in the private plane it doesn't go through the whole escape and we've got drake being asleep but his subconsciousness telling him if you've got to learn to hiss not to sliver which means he's got to blend in with his enemies but not be become one of them again that whole like you know he's got to recognize his flaws that he has got in common with someone like henriksen but he's got to rise above it and remember what his real you know motivation yeah. is and that he isn't you know and almost redeem himself in his own eyes I thought it was interesting as well because we mentioned Yablinski as a character that really Golden doesn't really care about but neither do the main characters even Henriksen his employer says I don't really care about him so it's almost, <laughs> but it's almost like that throwaway line where well you're not giving me a reason to care and it's almost like why do it why, you know you don't have to be so explicit we, don't, we know we're not really too fussed about him but you have to be so explicit about saying yeah you shouldn't care about him I don't care about him I'm just throwing him out there he's just to help the characters get from C to D that's what he's there for yeah and and when we get to like the, the final fourth labyrinth that I definitely felt that at this point not only did I want the book to end but Golden I think <laughs> <laughs> was at that point too because it's a lot more kind of condensed I feel like the others were kind of like deliberately drawn out and you could say that's because you know it's to prolong the mystery but it felt much more compact once we'd actually got to yeah. China and um, it was no longer necessarily kind of discovering clues and then having to ponder lots of different theorizations of what they meant we actually got we found something and then you actually get the answer relatively you know soon after that discovery and there's a lot of of course revelations and um a, a lot of the kind of question the a lot of the questions you've had sorry are kind of answered in between the action scenes in, in this final labyrinth section yeah i mean in this while we're on the plane we sort of do get the final information dumped don't we we get all the stuff about Daedalus you know conning all the kings and high priests we also get the fact that flowers are poisonous we also discover that the fourth labyrinth is in Nanjing and we also get that Daedalus died and his nephew Talos um, actually finished the design of the labyrinth and we get the name of the hooded men who are called protectors of a hidden word which I find quite strange don't know why it were called that it was never explained we also see that people the workers were given the drink of forgetfulness so we're getting a bit more clues now that there's something going on with the, the honey might be the drink and then all of a sudden drake makes a connection as he would do and golden describes it as levers falling into place in his mind but um he links it in with abducting people and lots of people going missing in nanjing and in fact Golden mentions about a detachment in 1939 of 300 men um, disappearing of Chinese army. In actual fact, I, I quick look up and it's about three. The estimates about 3,000 men disappeared in 1939 in the area. Nobody knows where they went. They were sent there to 
to stop the Japanese invading, but then they just disappeared when they, they found the weapons just stacked up. Even the commander didn't know where they went. So that was quite a strange occurrence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that mingling of like the yeah. fact with the fiction, you know, again, that's, that's, that is a nice wrinkle to the storytelling that Golden, you know, weaves throughout the story. Yeah. While all this is going on, the plane's suffering from turbulence, but surprise, surprise, it's actually not turbulence because... All of a sudden the plane lurches and they see the pilot has been killed by the co-pilot who then kills himself and they look at his eyes and it's glazed over. So he's been um, given some sort of drug. Then Drake sort of knows how to fly, like Indiana Jones. Then we get Golden skipping forward a bit and it's just a massive discussion based bit where Drake is looking out, seeing how powerful Henriksen, because Henriksen is using his connections, getting the diplomats from Norway and the USA to pressurise the Chinese just to let them pass through. We get mention of an ex of Sully's called Margaret Zinn. So that this isn't a character that's ever referenced then in the, the games then? This is just a, a creation for the novel, yeah, that's is that right. right? She's not mentioned yeah. at all in the video games. Um, she's an ex of Sully's who still loves him, and but it's Sully's almost like Drake-esque search for action. But he doesn't seem to want to settle down. So, but she gives Drake more information that possibly that the labyrinth is under some place called Treasure Mound, and this Drake makes a connection that the hooded men have connections in the Chinese government because the government forbade any excavation of any underground any underground palaces after the Beijing one was excavated in 1950. So after that. No other underground palaces were excavated. I didn't manage to check if that fact was true or not. Anyway, once again, we get Henriksen showing his military connections. of hire another mercenary group, a group of goons, or a group of red shirts, as I like to call it, who are just all about to get killed. Again, they're all like indistinguishable from one another, and they're just they're just like brought in to be the cannon fodder. Like so, that yeah. in the next action scene, <laughs> you know, people do actually yeah. die, but don't worry, it's not anyone whose <laughs> name you'd remember. No, no one called Drake. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and once again, we go to another labyrinth, and they find flowers. And these flowers are like the white hellebore. Now, I have no idea what a white hellebore is, but it's supposedly some sort of flower. They Drake uses a clever water technique to find out which passage is the more used, um, has the more wear. He uses water and we take the right path. They then find a symbol of four interlaced octagons, which suggests this is a fourth labyrinth. They it's it's just a series of uh, descriptions of them wandering down tunnels and um, finding out where bridges might have been. They find Dayu, they see spilt blood everywhere, they see a sacrificial altar in a... Oh yeah, that's right, and it's like all viscera, they sound like it's been stained for years, and yeah, it is, it is quite gruesome, like in the fact that they're saying that, um, what was it, that uh, the, the people who were abducted, either that um, they were possibly kind of like drugged or disorientated in the sense that they thought when they came to they genuinely did think that they were in hell and that they were then like kind of like tortured and it's all about kind of like the enslavement of these people and that's how they managed to get the labyrinths to be to be manned and run and obviously we'll have more revelations (laughs) coming up shortly (laughs) we are racing to the end here yeah, as Drake would do in, in a video game. So we see all these images of torture, we see the images of a honey, the honey is the drug, 
that creates a forgetfulness and that's made from yeah. the flowers that's, that's right isn't it flowers. yeah got it, yeah, got I, mean, it. Sp- I mean do say something that the white hellebore isn't really the white hellebore the ancient flower is the white hellebore and the modern one's something else it's been all uh conspiracy to hide the properties of this other plant so it just gets a bit hectic at this time where you're getting a lot of information a lot of revelations and drake at this time is locking his loading his pistol and looking for the moment when henriksen is going to betray him yeah because we start to learn what their motivations were isn't it i mean do we want to just spell that out now yeah in the sense that so the flowers have this like mind altering effect where it can almost like enslave someone's will to you know your your whim so in in a lot of regards Henriksen values that over and above any kind of like gold or treasure which seems to be the driving motivation for Olivia she thinks she's going to kind of get rich yeah. out of this whereas Henriksen's idea is to sell this kind of like flower extract to military leaders or dictatorships across the world and to you know just to accumulate more yeah. wealth yeah I mean it's described that Henriksen's just after more gold really like any typical businessman and people who are rich they just want more and more same thing he's got a long term plan where Olivia seems to be like yeah I want the gold and that's a short term short term gain so we've got a hint of what's to come we're going to get with a ravine coming up and Drake's eyeing up the big jump he's about to make um, seeing whether he can get across and then Olivia pulls a fast one and is revealed to be the one in charge of all the mercenaries shocks Henriksen yeah double crosses him and after already double crossing yep. her husband points the gun at Drake and really wants to kill him uh, but she reveals she didn't kill Luca but he was a weak man but they did set fire to the apartment yeah because Luca what have discovered yeah. the truth about the fourth labyrinth and the whole idea of how the Minotaurs were created through overdosing on this drug and it caused like deformity and everything like that. And he wanted to keep it all, you know, a secret. He didn't want to allow this to get into the wrong hands. And obviously, Olivia was, you know, thought that that was madness, like passing up the opportunity of having such great wealth. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm just I'm just reading my notes here. I mean, I've just got Drake kills a goon called Corelli because something snaps inside him. <laughs> That he gets so annoyed, he just doesn't give, give a shit about anything, and then just pushes Corelli into the ravine. Um, Olivia's shocked and tells another goon to basically kill Drake. And at that point, just in time to save our heroes, the protectors attack. So the hooded folk attack. Yeah, they've always got their tendency to like, you know, appear just when needed or like just to, yeah. as a diversion almost. <laughs> We've got another self um, insight into Drake's when he's haunted by the killings but he doesn't really give a shit about Corelli Corelli was a dick uh, for Ben we've got the Uncharted jump um, and we know Uncharted's got its platforming elements and here we've got Drake jumping across the ravine slamming uh, gets to the other side and then somehow because Jada jumps with him twisting his body and grabbing her before she falls over the edge I don't know it. that's um, that's how it it's described but once again it just evokes images of the and memories of the video game where you know where Drake is just jumping around he's got these amazing amazing forearm strength and is this like quick time <laughs> events Mark is it is that like is there moments where you have to stop him from falling off a perilous uh, drop by hitting triangle or something <laughs> not so much there's not a huge number of quick time events in the game it's, it's usually kind of it just happens 
during your climbing section as you're like you'll be climbing along like a, a, a ledge or something like that and then it'll fall off uh, and uh, Drake will fall down to the next oh right sorry it's, yeah it's like so it's, it's pre-animated then where it kind of just happens it's not something you control then it's just uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's pre-animated, but usually done in engine, yes. or it'll be something that's in a cutscene. Yes, got you. Yeah, but there's there's not really many quick time events. It's not no. the Tomb Raider reboot. So, where we are? All right, so there on the other side of the ravine, um, Henriksen, um, Olivia, and the other mercenaries are being attacked by the protectors. There's a lot of gunfights going on, and then we see five figures running towards Drake and Yeda because they've run off. They've left. Henriksen and the other mercenaries to fight the Tector clan and they've run off and they see five people running uh, oh sorry and in the meantime Henriksen has jumped across and joined Drake sorry yeah yeah because Drake, Drake doesn't uh, although obviously he's not his friend now he realises that Henriksen's been hoodwinked as well he doesn't want to just like leave. He, he doesn't feel no. he can just leave him there to be killed so against you know Jada's best wishes he, he ends up you know, encouraging him to yeah. kind of jump across to them, and uh, I think you were saying like obviously there was five figures, and it ends up being revealed that one of them is in yeah. Welsh. So again, it's tying into this idea that th- this kind of like potion or this concoction they make out of the flowers makes the people they give it to more kind of aggressive, and they're able to control them and kind of like that's why they were abducting people to kind of almost be new recruits as it were yeah I mean and this character in Welsh who spent a couple of chapters with early and you get a lot of detail with is basically killed in one shot so it's sort of just follow your view leave that maybe Golden was just really rushing to the end here just wanted to tie things up because <laughs> basically Henriksen goes boom and you see oh that's Ian and he's dead and, he's fu- and that's it and one sentence but the person following Ian is revealed to be Sully and we now get a fight between Drake and Sully and it's a long fight they go over a waterfall Sully's not listening it's that trope of a person in the mind control um, doesn't listen to you um, doesn't want Drake to try to plead with him try not to hurt him but then we get the uncharted combat you know unarmed combat where he sort of fist fight faint and then four, four punches and knocks Sully out exactly like the game we get more mercs the mercs appear again fighting the protectors and it's just a race to the finish now because they find the altar and we get this minotaur appearing so we finally see the minotaur yeah it is like a deformed human yeah. so that's like where the whole myth come from and they're adorned with these um, these these animal uh, horns that they they wear to their, they're strapped to their heads with um you know, with, I don't know, with gold or something, but it's kind of like tying in neatly, which I find, you know, as ludicrous and outlandish as this whole concept is, it's it kind of, I I think Golden does, a, you know, an ingenious job of saying, you know, the, the, the slaves were kind of like brainwashed. They ended up becoming like the armies that they, they were used to kind of protect the secrets of the labyrinths and the minotaurs they would guard, you know, the treasures beneath were actually kind of like mutated human beings so it gives it a, a form of believable incredibility <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I mean, it suggests that Henriksen's quite right in um, going after the flowers because Drake punches the minotaur no effect um, Henriksen shoots it twice in the chest no effect it manages to kill a merc after being hit three more times and then basically Drake leaves that fight and goes and finds goes underneath the altar um, and finds three tombs there he finds 
three more hooded men, and he sees the mistress of the labyrinth, this, mis- this mistress that was mentioned previously in the novel, and we've seen on the pictures. And we also see lying down on one of these tombs is an old minotaur who's in a lot of pain, who seems to be on his last legs. And it provides that sense of pity. Yeah, a bit of pathos for what's happened to these people. Like they're, although they're the, mer- they're the threat, I guess, to our hero, in a way, they're just victims of what's happened to them themselves and actually i think the real villains of the piece is shown to be like the greed isn't it the kind of unbridled yeah. greed of the herricksons and the olivias of the story yeah i mean here we get characters left right and being killed so the mistress kills Henriksen in a quite particularly gruesome way by put um, really a knife over his throat who was also and the mistress is also revealed to be like a hag and she's been poisoned by the hellebore yeah which she delivers yeah. to the slaves like it's her that kind of like bestows it upon them and obviously her proximity to it has caused her own kind of deformity or aging yeah Olivia appears with goon who's been badly injured and she gets this mad grin so she she's revealed to be mad when she sees all the gold that's available and she runs after it and by this point the mistress has been killed by the goon and the old minotaur can't really do anything but as he sees Olivia running around with his gold putting necklaces on her he triggers a water trap and Drake here feels some guilt and has some conscience and tries to save Olivia and it reminded me of The Last Crusade you know the ending of The Last Crusade when Indy's trying to save oh yeah the the, the femme fatale of the film yeah that's kind of like portrayed him yeah also I think what it is Olivia also in a reference to Indiana Jones it's because she's kind of lifted this um golden statuette of a monitor yeah. off a pedestal that, and that was like a weight so when um, she lifts it off it right. triggers you know like when Indy moves is it like a golden yeah. skull at the start of Raiders and then yeah so because the weights aren't because c- it's no longer you know weighted it ends up triggering yeah this booby trap and the right. whole thing starts kind of you know collapsing doesn't it and the old minotaur is kind of like swept into yeah. the water and uh, that's how he ends up getting his kind of clutches yeah, on olivia basically drags it down and they both drown and then drake sully who's by this time is okay he's back to his old self they all escape they decide to burn the hellebore so they decide to burn all the flowers so that can never be used by any government so kind of fulfill lucas yeah. desire isn't it that's the you know jada's murdered father that's what he would want to have done to like to prevent it coming out yeah but even Luca, I mean, this poor guy who we never really get to see, we follow all his clues and all we know about him that he was put in a trunk. All we get, even him is giving a bit of bad angle when Drake goes, even Luca would have been tempted by the history, by the fascination. He would have turned made money out of this. He wouldn't have just done it for the love of history. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think Drake does go through that kind of period of trying mm. to reason with the fact that he's been motivated by treasure in the past and he's almost got mm. drunk with the lust of discovery. And I think he sees that in you know the people around him, whether they're friend or foe. But ultimately, I think Drake's trying to say, but I, I, I did it in the end as a matter of, not necessarily of principle, but to kind of like protect and help Jada and Sully. Like I think he ends up kind of rationalising it as that he was, he's got a higher motivation yeah. than those. Whilst it's not, it's an impure, whilst it might not be 100%, you know, perfect and full of valour, ultimately he's doing the right thing. And, I, and ultimately he needs that, otherwise we would never go to one labyrinth, with him, not, <laughs> let alone the 300 pages of four. <laughs> So, 
final chapter um, we see funeral of Luca Drake and Sully are there um, yeah there's family are there it explains that they made sure Sully was free of poison like we said Drake is at peace with himself when debating the differences between himself and Henriksen even though they're not as wide but to him they are enough enough for him to continue and it gives that Drake that humanity it's not just about the money they say goodbye to Yeda who says that she's never going to she's not going to go on another trip with him and she goes to her family and then we get um, a sort of like taste, uh, taste of her next adventure about a guy who quit the priesthood but has got a map for Patiki and that's in Peru yeah so again it's like this idea of another like Atlantis another mythical yeah. uh, hidden city that they're, 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 they're off on their next yeah. adventure <laughs> I think the, like the last line is you know because Sally's saying what would you say if I told you about you know that we might know the whereabouts of this lost city you'd go I, I guess I'd say we're off to Peru <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to Peru <laughs> and then end credits and that is the end of the book Okay, I see where this is going. I just need a diversion. You give me five minutes in that tent, that's all it'll take. Really? Five minutes? Well, that's great. I won't even have to get my top off. Chloe, I was thinking more like an explosion. Or that can be arranged. Is it canon? The, the author, Chris Golden, hopes it is. He does think it's sort of set in between games one and two, Drake's Fortune and Among Thieves. But it's never been specified whether it's canon. If not, it's an interesting offshoot, interesting adventure. It shows that Uncharted can be taken to other forms of uh, media and can work. So, so um, are we saying that there, there aren't, because obviously I've not played all the games, that there isn't then characters in the novel, even minor ones, that appeared in the games? There's no, and there's no like deliberate... Is there anything kind of referenced in the book that ties in with what happens in the games? Because there was a really specific part where Drake mentioned something that happened to him when he got buried seven years ago in a cave or something. And I thought the way that that was so specifically dated, I didn't know whether that was meant to refer to something that happened in one of the games. Does he get like to something... Does he get um, caved in anywhere, like in, in the first Uncharted or anything? that you can recall oh, that's the only one I haven't played right. <laughs> okay, I'm just surprised <laughs> that they've I mean I can understand they wanted it to be separate so it allowed them not to interfere with the narratives they'd already set in motion with the games but I am quite surprised that they didn't feel the temptation to put in other recurring characters or somehow since this novel's come out other things have been referred back to that that intrigues me but then again maybe it's because that kind of interconnected narrative is much more in vogue now because they've obviously taken the whole the whole kind of like i don't know rise of the comic book style of storytelling you know where you've got not necessarily multiple universes but you've got like a shared universe where things like overlap from one text to another but um, yeah no it's interesting that this is completely separate i i, I was i would have thought there'd have been more illicit kind of connections than that no, what I would say the only connections are in terms of where Golden throws in like things I've mentioned as we've gone through the story, like Drake being a crap shot in the video game, you know, the poor aiming, and he mentions himself he's not a marksman. Then we've got a few instances of Drake hanging on to ledges, you know, as exploring these. It does tend to hang on to a lot of things <laughs> throughout the game. Yeah, so it's more it's more nods to gameplay rather than the actual the narrative itself. Yeah, then. it's yeah. These yeah. characters, apart from Sully and Drake himself, don't none of them have crossed over into anything else. I was intrigued by you when it mentioned the Aztecs. It was quite uh, like you said, it was quite a detail specific event that happened. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the one I was. Yeah, reading, yeah. and that wasn't 
really I couldn't discover anything that where it did cross over into a video game. So apart from that, it it was very light. It didn't reveal too much about Drake's history. It revealed more facets of his character a bit, but really didn't cross over into the history or anything. Like once and once once again, it just crossed over into flanking. Flanking's a big part of Uncharted where the enemies do to you, the large jumps where Drake's crashing into walls and just hanging on for dear life. So all that stuff and the action scenes, all, Golden included all that, but I think there was a, you can tell there's a quite clear intent by Naughty Dog to keep the thing separate. Which is sep- which is different to the comic book, uh, which I, I haven't read the comic book either, but that is does actually feature... Um, as well as uh, Nathan and, and uh, Vic Sullivan also features uh, Harry Flynn right. and Chloe Fraser characters from the actual games themselves. So the, the comic book itself does have a little bit more of a crossover with um, with the games, it seems. But apart from um, Sully and, uh, uh, and and Drake, none of the characters in this in this book, I think, I don't think any of them. No, are in I haven't any come of across any of them. So that's quite strange. And I haven't read the comic book. I mean, I was looking at the price of it. it's quite expensive because it's out of print. But um, that's quite interesting that the comic book was allowed to cross over characters. Well, but that could mm. possibly that could be then the subject of another Ballyhoo episode <laughs> in the future. <laughs> quite possibly. <laughs> so let's tie this up. We're going to look at whether we enjoyed it or rec- and whether we can recommend it and we're going to see if Mark is going to be picking up Uncharted 4th Labyrinth at some point in the future. So, Lee, did we enjoy it? Did you enjoy the book? <laughs> um, I, again, you always feel so bad that you've come across because I never want to be negative about any of it, but um, I couldn't help but like voice some of my criticisms of it. I think it, I would say I finished it, so that in itself means that I must have had some level of enjoyment out of it. And it, you know, it was a. I was intrigued by the concept, I think, of the shows that you were talking about, you know, the idea of the, the Ballyhoo shows in themselves. So I was willing to explore kind of gaming franchises in other media. So I'm pleased in it's that I've done that. I, I'm, I'm not sure, like, once we've done a few more, I would imagine if I was going to rank them, this one would be pretty low down the, li- down the list, just in the sense that I... It's really difficult whether I'd recommend it. I think, because... in some regards I almost feel like yeah I probably would recommend it only if you've kind of played the games because it's kind of like a totally separate adventure that does give it a level of accessibility that someone like myself could just come to it I I think it's really all about your kind of taste in what reading material you like and whether you've got the, the stamina to persevere with a book which I think sometimes has got pacing issues and isn't incredibly exciting despite it's kind of like plot so uh, I, I guess it's like um, a, a cautious recommendation to people that love Uncharted and are willing to kind of spend more time in the presence of those characters. So I think, you know, the book would offer some enjoyment to those people. And also, if possibly you're someone who don't, doesn't tend to read like a lot of novels, but you kind of like, you've got some familiarity with Uncharted, and you might find this, uh, you know, a, a, a pleasant way to kind of pass the time. It's difficult, <laughs> a, quali- a qualified recommendation, but I guess you'll know, you know very quickly a few chapters in whether it's going to be for you or not. For me personally, I enjoyed it, I really enjoy it, and maybe because I've played the games. So I've played the three main games on the PS3, so I found that a lot of it, the familiarity of the video games was in the novel, so the start really throws you in. And I think you're right, and I do agree with you, Lee, in this point, where 
I think you have to play the games first before you come to the novel. Because if you come to the novel first, I don't think you fully grasp who Nathan Drake is. I think you do say that he's a bit of a twat. You do think he's a bit childish with Sully. But I do think the two female characters are very well written. Um, once again, Gordon has looked at Uncharted and says, yeah, the two female characters in Uncharted themselves are very strong. He's made sure that he's got strong female characters. Would I recommend it? Yeah, I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to say it's a strong recommendation for me. I think Gordon's done a really good job. The way, it, I suppose, you read about things, how he has to tie it in to the games, the character's already really been decided for him. He just has to make sure that he um, stays true to those characters. And I think in terms of... It's, it's different because we come in like a Bondesk start... We've got a lot of travelling, like an Indiana Jones film, so we're travelling from continent to continent. I think maybe what he could have done was mix up, not being a labyrinth all the time, but the way he's done his research and he's laid, made the connections between different historical areas and different sort of myths and facts and thrown in Atlantis, brought in China, brought in this mystery of the missing army. I think the story itself is really well written, but I, I would say... Make sure you play the games, be familiar with the character, then you will enjoy the novel a lot more. And so, Mark, do you think you're going to pick this up? Um, to be honest, I don't know if I would. And I'm a big fan of the Uncharted series, the, the games I've played. I have really, really enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to Uncharted 4, and I will, in the not-too-distant future, get hold of a copy of the Nathan Drake collection and finally play through the original Uncharted, and then play through the other two again as well. It's not so much that I don't know uh, that the, 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 the book doesn't really sound my my bag. It's more to do with the genre itself. The, it, it, you know, action adventure sort of stuff works quite well in video games, and it worked well in a film, and it will work well in a comic book. I don't know whether it it's my thing when it's written down as an actual novel. I, for instance, I don't think I'd ever read a novel based on Indiana Jones because I just don't think it would really work. You know, written, written out long form. Uh, something like, say, I would be interested in maybe trying some of the Dragon Age um, spin-off books because, you know, they're epic fantasy novels with a ridiculous amount of lore whereas there's not a huge amount of story in the Uncharted games in comparison to something like Dragon Age. So I don't know whether I will pick it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a valid point mm, in terms yeah. of the idea of, like, the suitability of the subject material with a given medium and the fact that it obviously originated as a video game and you could argue that the pleasures that you might derive from the action elements or from the you know the, the kind of larger than life historical adventure yarn aspects of it yeah you, you could get those probably in a more direct um, vein within the game so I think yeah. you're probably right if people are looking for that kind of aspect about you know, if they're the things they want to experience in Uncharted, it's probably the most undiluted and the most kind of successfully conveyed through playing the game itself. I mean, that, that in it, I'm not saying that Golden hasn't done a good job because I think Andy has convinced me that you know he's, he's taken on quite a difficult task, and and there were some elements of it that I think he was successful in. But I guess I'd have to disagree with that. I think I, I, I think if you're going to sit down and read a 300-page book, regardless of the genre, I think there's better ones than this. That's just, you know, my personal opinion coming at it more from the point of view of a reader rather than a, than a player of the of these particular games. Hmm. 
And it's, it's definitely nothing to do with the subject matter because I think it's the same reason why, despite being a huge Star Wars geek, uh, I've never read any of the Star Wars Extended Universe books because I just don't think Star Wars would work as a novel. So I've never bothered trying reading any of them because I've just got a horrible feeling that I just wouldn't enjoy it. It's just a, just a genre that I, I don't think works for me in novel form. Mm. No, that's fair. That's a fair point. But I think it's be an interesting thing to see as our first episode of Ballyhoo that um, how video games translate into, in particular, in this case, novels, and how skill. I, I do think Golden's a skillful writer. I mean, he wouldn't have been so successful in doing and writing so many other books. And yeah, that's very true. Yeah, you know, if he was, it was if he was some poor writer, and clearly from the book and what I've read, I enjoyed it. He's a skillful writer. He does get some of the. It does. I do enjoy some of these scenes of where he tries to play over menace and describes things, like a, tries to incorporate a movie element to it. He does have to get these video game tropes in, and it. I do feel. I did feel as I was reading the book that it's quite tropey. You know, we've got the corporate. We've got the big business. We've got a hidden research. We've got the businessman who's rich. We've got maybe a double cross here. And but for all that, I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, it's not war and peace, but that, that in itself isn't a criticism because, you know, that's not what people would be picking it up expecting. And I think you're right. If you if people want, you know, a diversion, they want to have a, uh, either their first step into the Uncharted franchise or, like we said before, they just want to enrich their experience with these characters, it's worth giving a go. And then I just think it comes down to personal taste. In, at the end of the day of what you're going to have a tolerance for if it, it could be that you know this is your type of story and you know that you do you get a great deal of enjoyment like you said Andy or for others like myself they might find some of it kind of just you know problematic but I don't I don't regret reading it it wasn't like the worst book I've ever read by any means it's just an interesting kind of introduction for me into this exploration of this idea of adapting video game IPs into other subject materials so I'll be fascinated to like read other books based on video games that you might suggest or the listeners or um, like you were saying before even into things that or even more of a jump of adaptation you know things like board games based on video games so yeah no I, I think it's a, a great idea again just uh, again expanding the um, the reach of gaming as a hobby and hopefully encouraging those that have lapsed out there to, to, to get involved even if it might not be through the direct means of, of playing the games themselves and of course we'd love to hear from any of the listeners who have read the book um, whether they agree or strongly disagree with what we've said it'd be great to hear their opinions on this book uh, Uncharted The Fourth Labyrinth Brilliant and hopefully if you haven't read it and you've skipped right to the end Lee has now got a competition to give away his now second hand copy of Uncharted Yep, and of course I will uh, pay for the postage. So if you just want to tweet the last line of the book, which is, we're going to Peru. So if you have skipped all the spoilers, don't worry. We're not saying who says that or anything. But the last line of the book is, we're going to Peru. Uh, Even if you have listened all the way through, and uh, you know, regardless of whether you've read it before or not, basically my copy of the fourth Labyrinth Uncharted novelisation is up for grabs. Just tweet that, we're going to Peru to Lapse Gamer. And... uh, you know, obviously, you can DM me your postal address, and I will get that out to you. Brilliant. So, I'd like to say thanks to the guys, you know, for our first episode of Ballyhoo. Upcoming specials: we have got the second part of our Uncharted coverage. 
as we get ready to feature Uncharted Golden Abyss on our upcoming playlist episode. I'm only up to about chapter five, and obviously reading the novel is taking me away from the game, uh, so I'll have to go back to it. I suppose, yeah, that's the good thing, and it's, uh, it, that's one positive thing I can certainly say as an endorsement for the book. It's made me keen to go back and play Golden Abyss, because I think I'd much rather play Uncharted than read it. <laughs> <laughs> Golden Abyss is, is, is a good game. It is a good game. So, unfortunately, we got no feedback on the book. Um, not many of you are Uncharted readers, but hopefully this show will encourage you to be, and you can give us feedback at any time about the book or anything else. But we'd like to give any sh- some shout-outs to some people. I'd like to give a shout-out to We're Not Wizards, um, a podcast about board games. They've just started. I've listened to them all. Two Scottish guys, really brilliant, really informative for um, a newbie into the modern board gaming genre. Give them a listen. Really dry wit, really informative, really good. And I'd like to second that. They've uh, been really uh, supportive of us and... Um, encouraging and I think as they said us podcasters have got to stick together so yeah big shout for We're Not Wizards and uh, you know wish them every success in the future and it's brilliant I'll certainly be listening along uh, at, you know as we've sort of alluded to previously the whole kind of ball game element um, and you know I'm keen to get back into the hobby so that's a big recommend from us at Laps Gamer Radio and one of those uh, one of the hosts of that podcast has been kind enough to leave us uh, an iTunes review so thanks very much for that right so, ways for the community to get in touch, send us questions, suggestions, new segments you'd like, to, you'd like us to start doing, what are we already doing that you'd like or don't like, or anything for us to read out on the show, let us know. Either email the show to lapsgamerradio at gmail.com, you can read our blog, which is lapsgamerradio.blogspot.co.uk, you can tweet us at our Twitter feed at lapsgamer, or you can like our lapsgamer Facebook page, or add yourself to the lapsgamer community Facebook group. You can also find all our podcast episodes to stream or MP3 download our Podbean web address, which is um, lapsedgamerradio.podbean.com. Also, be so kind as to subscribe and review Laps Gamer Radio on iTunes, and you can check out our Laps Gamer Radio YouTube channel for additional content. And remember, do let us know if you'd like to be on a future episode with us. So we hope you found something to enjoy whilst listening to LGR's first foray into the expanded media of video games. This is going to be, um, you know, Andy's brainchild. I think it's going to be like an occasional strand of shows that we hope to add to in the future. Uh, Not all associated media based on video games are classics. We recognise this, but we're going to endeavour to highlight ones to avoid and the gems to be discovered. Whether it be a comic, a book, a TV show, or a film, or even a board game, it might just provide the impetus needed to rekindle the love of gaming that has lapsed within you. So I'd like to say take care, and until next time, tally-ho! <laughs> Bally-ho! 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 <laughs> Ta-ra. Ta-ra.
Um, so when we've got here like the synopsis of the book or the blurb, shall we get Mark to read that soon as he hasn't read the book? <laughs> like, I don't know whether you want to actually like say that, Andy, but I mean, what do you want to go for? Is the synopsis on Wikipedia or whatever better than the blurb or will the blurb suffice? I suppose we should do the blurb, shouldn't we, if we've, if we've done the cover-up? Where am I Where am I finding the blurb? What document's that in? Oh, you can't. It's at the back, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, I don't actually have it. <laughs> <laughs>